Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, my business partner, the dear, the sweet, uh, dram, dram golf, the white, Johnston Yellen. It has come to pass this day. There is a mark on my front door. Whiskey lovers are stopping by. They're going on an adventure. They're not sure why, but they know they're in the right place. Oh, you're doing a callback to The Hobbit. Look at that. I was expecting a little Lord of the Rings, but you went back all the way back to The Hobbit. It's my first love. Is it? I remember reading that at 11 it, years old, not PM or AM, but just <laughs> no, just, just being just a, ten minutes ago at eleven. I. <laughs> just being a, a young fellow and moving into that world, and just thinking, gosh, so good, so good. You know what's funny is, I didn't read, uh, I didn't read The Hobbit first. I read Lord of the Rings first. You had me. I didn't read. No, I've read Lord of the Rings like a good 15 to 20 times. At least 15 to 20 times. No <laughs> other books have ever been read by Hatton but Lord of the Rings. The one book he has. Oh my gosh, I was addicted to it. I had a band named, a hardcore band, an elfcore band named after it. I love your use of elfcore. That's what we, that's what we called ourselves. We were a distortionless <laughs> hardcore band called Leaves of Lothlorien. <laughs> Did you all just pull these words out of a hat? You were like, these, these are the words, they now live in this order, this is now how we say it. It totally is, and we wanted to see if people would f- like follow that, because it was, it was silly, and people did, you know, and in the 90s we did okay. I like that you created musical subgenres the way you write tasting notes. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's it's true. My most my most recent. Band. I wish listeners could have seen your face there. That was good. That was good. Do you know how we're categorized in in iTunes with my most recent band? Bukaki Rock. Yeah, Bukaki Rock. I'm here for every one of your stories. Look at that. I didn't know you remembered. I don't I don't remember what stories I've told who, so I just tell them over and over and over again. You're you're a gentleman reaching that age. <laughs> Did I tell you when? Oh, we shot bloody foxes from the back of horses. Did I ever tell you by the time? Oh bloody mom. Oh, have I got a yarn for you, young gent oh, Danielle? Uh, did you ever have an onion on your belt? I'm sure I've made that joke before on the podcast. Have you ever had an onion on your belt? What does that mean? That's uh, Grandpa Simpson. Huh. This is doing fantastically. Yeah, this is... Let me tell you about my weekend. Oh, please do, because I'm curious. Said no one ever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so used to it by now <laughs> that I'm just... I'm really well-versed in talking into the void. So, mm-hmm. this, this fits perfectly with Westland being our focus today, is I was invited to be part of that boutique whiskey company's World Whiskey Summit 2021. Wait, which boutique whiskey company? That boutique whiskey company. Not this one, it was that one? That one. 
That boutique whiskey that, company. Oh, that boutique whiskey company. Got it. Continue. Sorry, I just wanted to be clear. Do you always read it with the emphasis when you see the title? Do you always read it with that boutique whiskey company? No, it's all it's all monotone. It's that boutique whiskey company. It's just da 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 da. You should get more emphasis in there. So where where do you, you put your emphasis? That boutique whiskey company. Do you do it like that? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I emphasize the hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> As one does. <laughs> so, so anyway, I, so I was invited to be part of that as a white guy with a beard. That was the that was the segment, the recurring segment. But I have to say this: they intended to do two hours uh, on YouTube and Facebook, and they ran for two and a half. And I have to say, I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was so well put together. Mm. And, and the topics, there was diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. There was sustainability and kind of environmental. And then there was a third that I'm blanking on. I want to say like new grains were part of it. I do know oh. I talked about new grains, gave me a chance to talk about Dan Barber, Third Plate, Matt Hoffman, yeah. Westland, yep. Yep. Mixed Mash Bill. Like all, all the things we're about to discuss with Matt in this interview, mm-hmm. I got to, to allude to them uh, in my time. But, but I actually sat um, with a wee glass of the new Coleri, which you and I are going to pronounce... 50,000 different ways over the course of this podcast, so long as I don't make a return to pronouncing it cholera, which did not go over particularly well with Mr. Matt Hoffman. Yeah, I... And I, I didn't do it on purpose. No. You know, I I wasn't trying to be an asshole. I just was. It was just a shame that you actually had cholera. That's the, that's <laughs> the sad thing. I, yeah. Is that like dysentery? I think it's... Yeah. I think... It precedes dysentery. Who doesn't want their brand associated with this conversation? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so 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 go on. So we did, it is from the Latin. And so James Foster right now is just pulling his hair out as he listens to us butchering Latin. Um, P.N. remains the one correction that he made that is so Mm. deeply embedded in my brain now, it really is pronounced P-N, and I've pronounced it a <laughs> hundred different ways so that it doesn't sound like P-N my whole life, and P-N is correct. So maybe he'll write in and, and tell me, <laughs> you, you were right with cholera, <laughs> but I I doubt it. But it, but interestingly, uh, we, we did, with Matt, get to discuss grains and mm-hmm. farming and farmers and agriculture, uh, and yeah. soil and healthy soil and sustainable mm-hmm. practices. And so it, it, it really was great to be able to to represent the good Westland name, even just in passing. Mm-hmm. And then I have to tell you, because I know you and I did this a couple of weeks ago, we, we interviewed Lee and Bree Atwood, Lee, he of the creation mm-hmm. of Dram Golf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... And, I, and after I was done with my Westland, I went ahead and poured a little bit of the Backwoods. And I was sipping on the Backwoods as I continued on with the World Whiskey Summit. And 
I, I know we mentioned it to Liam Breen. I don't know if we've got it on wax and I don't know if it'll show up in a future episode <laughs> or in the future episode. Yeah. But I was continually reminded of that cherry chocolate truffle note Mm-hmm. That is in the backwoods rye yeah. matured in yeah. Shiraz cask, yeah. and and the reason that I went ahead and poured the backwoods is because of that story of the the rye sitting dormant in a dry Australian field for fifty years and then being brought back to life, and, mm. and we'll bring that back up when we talk to Lee. And but but I just wanted to I thought of you mm. as I sat there sipping on it, and it just kept drawing my attention as like yeah this is this is joshua's observation with this pour yeah. is yeah. that even if you're just sitting sipping on it doing something else it grabs you by the collar and it pulls does. you it back pulls you so. back every single time it's you can't yep. you can't and ignore it yep you cannot and then just for funsies um Towards the end of the broadcast, I poured the single cast nation Pender and single cast. Oh, good! Idea. Uh, the the Grand Cru Bordeaux, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, so you know, I, I think their emphasis is on world as opposed to world whiskey with the summit. Um, but I went with world whiskies just for the fun of it, oh. just because I could. So that's interesting. So you know, back to the emphasis. This was more a world thing. It wasn't. It wasn't a focus particularly on whiskey. Just a global conversation. Well, I think it was a whiskey summit drawing upon the world, as opposed to a summit about world whiskey. Got it. I got it. Look at that. There's the emphasis. Yep. yep. But uh, Jason Parker appeared in a, a fair few times. Jason Parker of oh, Copperworks, yeah, Copper who we've had yeah, on the sure. podcast. Yeah. Uh, and he he was fantastic as well. Love, love, love listening to him. And then, yeah, a number of other friends popped up. It is still available, actually. If, if you do want to go see it, you can do a search for World Whiskey Summit 2021 and you will find it. Oh, lovely. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, hell, just Google it and see what happens. Oh, it's it's yeah. well worth everybody's time. If, if you're the type of person who would listen to this podcast... Mm-hmm. That is well worth your time. Uh, a lot of different voices, a range of voices. And as I say, the topics were really good and and the comments made uh were were insightful. Not not by me, but by other people. <laughs> um they were they were well worth listening uh, to. Ah, you know, I, I I wish I had a chance to to watch that. As you know, I was doing my own World Whiskey Day event with Drammers Club. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't even able to enjoy that entire session because, you know, family things going on. So I went in for my 20 minutes and we had David Cover from Pandaren in with his 20 minutes. But it, it was a, a, a cool event where where brands can come in and you had 20 minutes to talk about a whiskey and talk about your brand and how it fits within the, the world whiskey scene. And and it's it, it's just fun. I. You know, there was there was a long period of time where I was where I was loving Zoom, and then I got Zoom fatigue, and then I was mm. loving Zoom again, and then I was getting Zoom fatigue, and then I stayed in Zoom fatigue for a while. But now, I'm 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 loving it again from the standpoint of I'm ge- I'm getting to see all the people that I know and love within the whiskey world. And I know because many of us are getting vac- vaccinated. We're not too far away from actually hugging these people and, and sharing drams with these people. And so 
I'm starting to feel like this unusual spring fever. Um, where you're like, you're <laughs> almost there. Summer's <laughs> almost here, you know? And so, so I'm excited about Zoom again. I'm excited about seeing people on Zoom and more excited about seeing them in person soon as well. It's funny you talk about the in-person. I will be conducting my first in-person interview for the first time since... <laughs> no idea. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah. January of 2020, when you and I were in London interviewing John Glazer and Sukinder Singh and James Saxon. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that, that was our last foray out in our last joint interview with anybody live at least did did we interview anybody in scotland when we when we jumped up there from london in january of 2020 i'm sure we did but my brain is escaping me right and so there you go so bill thomas will be of jack rose dining saloon in dc will be my first in person oh lovely since January of 2020. How crazy is that? It's so bizarre that I'm trying to think that has to be wrong. We must have conducted an in-person during COVID with masks, six feet apart, and I don't think we did. Do you remember the sign that that would say six feet apart is better than six feet under? Oh, right. Yeah. Right. We're we're remembering things now. We are. Slowly. Slowly but surely. (laughs) Anyway. That takes me back to March. (laughs) (laughs) So, So we have Matt Hoffman with us today. And what excites me about this episode is the past few episodes with Matt Hoffman have been focused on April Fool's. Mm -hmm. And our last, you know, re- I wouldn't say, you know, I shouldn't say our April Fool's conversations weren't real conversations. They were more fun conversations. But our first, you know, down and dirty, let's get get into the nitty gritty of things. Uh, the last time we did that at Westland was our live event at the distillery. Far too long ago. Right. Skinny Roberts was on there. Matt, uh, the gentleman, um, oh, geez, his name is escaping me. The The winemaker was there as well. I always uh, love it when you start going down those paths I and know, I can see I know, the exact know, yes. path you're about to walk down. <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what the winemaker was called. He was a lovely, lovely guy and his yeah. contribution was fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't used his name since that live event. I'm like, I wonder how Joshua's going to get out of this cul-de-sac. He's not. Nope, he's not. just going to now, if, if any, my house. Move in. <laughs> if anybody's curious as to what that gentleman's name is, he can check out our website. One nation under whiskey.com slash I don't know. <laughs> the good news is he's not a regular listener, so we're not offending him to <laughs> his not. ears right now. If if he does listen to this, we greatly apologize. He was absolutely lovely. And he made me interested in wine. So there you go. I, I <laughs> actually started drinking a little wine since our conversation with him. So he's made an impact. Though his name is is yeah, fucked if I know what he's called. <laughs> But anyway, back, back to our conversation with Matt, what I really enjoyed about this one is rather than get into the geeky ins and outs of production once malted barley is in-house, 
This is focusing a bit more, on, like you had said, on the growing of the barley, on the agriculture, on sustainable practices and, and, and things like that. And, and it's so very important and so very interesting as well. Yeah, and I think you said it towards the beginning of our, our time with Matt, was it, it was a catch-up on all things Westland. Mm. You know, not only are we talking about the new release in the Outpost series or what they're now going to be doing with grain moving forward or reused casks going forward, but also what does the future hold for their, their standard line? And there had been rumours that we'd heard about changes and we got to ask Matt directly. And he was very forthcoming. There were mm. some things he told us about. We recorded this in April, I believe, after after April After Fools. April Fools, yes. Yep. Yeah, we, we returned and, and had a conversation. And he was telling us some things that were in the pipeline. And since then, they have come to fruition. They're on their website as general knowledge. But there's some other things that he's going to tell us about that we're going to revisit after the interview. Oh, you're such a tease, Jason. Such a tease. In a good way. <laughs> so shall we shall we hand the mics over to ourselves and and Matt Hoffman? Let's go. The Matt Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's funny, you know, we, 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 we seem to have gotten into this, uh, this, I wouldn't call it a rut, but we got into something where we said, <laughs> okay, it's, it's April Fool's, so let's have another Westland episode. Okay, it's April Fool's again, let's have another Westland episode. But I think the last time we had a serious Westland conversation was when we did our live event at the distillery Jeepers Creepers. Was that 2018 now or 2000? Could have been 18, could have been 17, could have been something else. Yeah. So too long. Too, too long. Is it? Too long. Perfect. Perfect. Well, well said. So, so yeah. So with, with that said, you know, it's been three to four years. And I imagine in those three to four years, new things other than special uh, other than uh, April Fool's uh, events, April Fool's things has happened. So takes up to speed, man. Like, <laughs> what are you excited about in the past four years? Wh what's been going on in Westland as you've been ramping up to now? Because I know you, you know, in a little bit we're going to be talking about some new releases and new lines of whiskey that, that you'll be launching. But what have you been doing the past four years leading up to this new range of, of whiskeys that you'll be launching? Oh, man, there's there's a lot. I mean, the past four years, we've been really, really busy. I think as a general rule at Westland, uh, we try to stay busy and keep ourselves moving forward constantly. Uh, the, the big, the really big thing has been Gariana continuing to grow. That first came out in 2016. Um, but it has now continued to grow, getting that, uh, to our fans, not just in the U S but around the world. Um, we also started the planting program that we had. So, uh, that began in 2017, the replanting of Gary Oaks in the native Gary Oaks savannas as a part of the Gariana program, mm. um, is putting Gary Oaks back into the grounds, uh, and helping to restore this, uh, this ecosystem. Uh, that is quite central to 
uh, parts of the Pacific Northwest. But a really big thing that's that's been moving along has been the work that we've been doing in agriculture, I would say, mm-hmm. especially over the past three years. We've been working on it since 2012, you know, and, and we'll get into this, but things have really begun to accelerate, especially it was in, uh, it was in the, the very end of 2019. Uh, we committed to fully funding a PhD student who was going to you know, spend four years outside of the commodity system uh, developing new barley varietals mm. uh, with a new set of goals, and I'm sure we could talk about that, um, as well as um, getting closer to agriculture ourselves, uh, which includes um, you know, some of our own uh, barley farming, which we're actually going to get into for the first time this year. Wow, uh, that's going to be a whole thing. So wow, and and, so and Westland. We haven't really talked publicly about that yet. Uh, so you'll be on growing Westland soil on Westland soil. That's fantastic. Okay, continue, please. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is this? So, yeah. So this is. Is this happening on this, First this, Avenue, just down from Safeco Field? Yeah, or? it's that. It's that little plot right underneath the trees where all the birds poop. You know, it's. Um, <laughs> No, it's it's uh, we we've we've had this big commitment to the Skagit Valley as as you guys know, um, uh, where we've been sourcing a lot of the barley um, over the past, especially the past four or five six years, increasing percentages. And there's just really something special that's going on up there. And we we got to a point where we said, okay, we need to move actually our our barrels, mm-hmm. our rack houses. Uh, we needed to find a new home for those. Mm. Um, as well as an expanded bottling line. Hmm. And so we said, okay, if we're going to do that, there's no room to do any of that stuff in Seattle. We're already in kind of as big of a place as you can realistically get in Seattle. So if you're going to do that, what's your second home now? And that second home now is going to be Skagit. So along with that, we purchased a farm. It's actually the same contiguous piece of land, only one part's agriculture, one part's not. And we'll be planting barley on it um, in, well, let's see, you know, in just a couple of weeks, wow. you know, spring barley is, is on its way. Wow. So, That's very cool. Uh, it, it really is. And we're, we're basically using this farm as something in between, like a, like a proper farm. We're not, we are uh, not professional farmers. Um, but what we're doing with the bread lab and the research that's going on, there's little test plots. There's a step that's going between these test plots. You know, when the when the research students uh, and everybody else there at Washington State University are developing these new barley varietals, it starts, you know, literally with like one, um, one barley stock, and then it goes to, you know, a little, a little plot, and then a little, you know, one foot by six foot row, and then it continues to grow. But when we get to a new barley varietal that is really interesting, outside of the commodity system, it is a big ask for a farmer mm. to take on this new barley varietal that's a complete unknown. Mm. So our thought process here is. Let us be a part of that system. Let us um, take on some of that risk with you. So yeah. we will be the first ones to grow one of these new barley varietals at scale and really test it under kind of proper, you know, not micromanaged agricultural conditions under under a, what we consider normal farming conditions with a professional farmer who's there. He's the one doing the work. Um, but we're able to say, okay, this is what we're going to learn in real time, you know, in the same type of soil that, uh, the farmers and the rest of Skagit Valley are are learning on. We could take that, and then and then use that information to help the farmers if they want to get that varietal out and grow it in other places in the valley. Uh, okay. So it's like a it's like a really big test kitchen or, or something in between that kind of pure research phase and pure commercial phase. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but definitely enough to make whiskey out of, to be clear. And, and right. And so, and so with that in mind, you know, the, again, going back to the last time we were at the distillery, in addition to selecting some casks with you that we're incredibly excited to release soon, you also tasted us through a bunch of different new makes that were highlighting specific barley varieties. And I'll never forget, I think it was called Talisman that tasted like tomato soup. Like that, that one was just wild, wild. Obsidian. Obsi- oh, oh, is it Obsidian? Was was okay. The, and yeah, then it was the tomato soup one, the famous tomato soup one in a good way. I mean, it sounds absurd, <laughs> but like, you know, yeah, you and, know, I like tomato soup. Who doesn't like tomato soup? Right. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, Talisman was no, the grilled so, cheese one. Right. And you do the grilled cheese and the tomato soup. Yeah. That. You just, yeah, you blow, this is, we blend those two together <laughs> yep, to achieve the yep, perfect yep. Sunday, Sunday lunch. So, <laughs> <laughs> so so doing all those tests with the different barley varietals that that you had uh acquired through Skagit Valley I imagine that helped inform the type of barley that you're looking to plant on your own barley farm so I'm curious or your own section of the barley farm and so I'm curious what varieties did you land on and and why Well for this first year uh, we're going to be planting Laureate, which is a relatively known, uh, it's a newer varietal, um, but it's not one that is going to cause us a tremendous amount of heartache for this first year of like yeah. literally learning how to manage this process. Um, what's coming behind it is the work that uh, Louis Prager is this PhD student uh, who's working on these new varietals along with Dr. Steve Jones and the rest of the team at the Bread Lab. That's going to take a little bit of time. You know, you've got it. It literally does take years to scale those things to a certain degree. So there's a couple of things we're trialing first. One is getting the farming part uh, under our belt, especially for this first year, Mm. and then getting rotations under our belt as well. So there's a couple of things here, which is we're not just planting barley. We, as in the, the broad barley industry in the Skagit Valley in particular, are not planting barley in a vacuum. They're planting it in rotation with other crops. So if you're going to do that, you can't just not pay attention to those rotations. You've also got to see, you know, how does that barley harvest and planting work if you've got to plant, I don't know, tulips next or Mm -hmm. potatoes next or whatever Mm. it may be. And in fact, this also gives us the the ability to test uh, rotation crops, especially in more um, uh, low impact, low environmental impact agricultural systems. So the farm is certified salmon safe. Uh, which is a designation we use out here uh, to protect stream runoff. Uh, It has also uh, been, this crop will be certified organic so long as we don't screw up the paperwork. So all of this stuff will be with organic as a baseline. And so the idea here is let's use these low impact, low environmental impact agricultural systems, not just for barley, but the other things that the farmers are growing in the valley, you know, to test all of that stuff out. So there's, it is much bigger than like mm-hmm. just an estate barley project, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's again, it's kind of a, it's it's some degree of scale, but as a laboratory at the same time. Uh, hmm. So we have seen the stuff that we're, we've been really excited about. There are really exciting varietals. The easiest bucket to get super excited about is the dark varietals, yeah. uh, the purples, the blacks, uh, the blues, the reds. You know that stuff, especially when you see those those. Compounds are linked, most of them with anthocyanins, which is a compound in grapes that gives it its, uh, uh, or linked to flavor in wine grape skins. Hmm. So that's the sort of stuff that we're pursuing a lot right now, especially with uh, the Bread Lab. 
So we'll see. I mean, this is a long-term proposition here, you know. So you, just really quickly, I want, I just want to dig deeper into this, into this barley thing, because, you know, Scottish producers typically are not talking about the barley. And if barley is brought up, if barley is brought up, it's usually brought up by some whiskey nerd who says, yeah, so what sort of barley are you using, right? And, uh, and then they'll say, yeah, we're using concerto. We're using optic. We're using whatever. But the, but the reason that they're using, you know, select the barley, the barley of the month is that there's a certain amount of yield that comes along with it and comes along with, with, the, with the yeast that you're using. And this is one of the things that I've always loved about Westland. And, and Jason and I talked about this on, on our last One Nation Under Whiskey podcast, is that Westland has always made it a point to not just focus on the final product, which is the whiskey, but on the, the product that you're, about, that you're about to ferment, that you're about to turn into alcohol. You're, you're creating a mixed uh, mash bill of different barley varieties to give you, give you different flavors. And so I'm curious, you know, you, you talked about red barleys and purple barleys and blue barleys and, and, and all this, and this is something that most people don't even think about. I know I don't think about it, and and I only discovered these different varieties through you because of talking with you. So, how rare are some of these barley's, and and is this species something that that is repeatable? Are these like heirloom species that just grow if you focus on it, or like what what's the deal with these unusual barley's? Well, let me, let me do this. Let's, I mean, the, the idea of the farm, as we've been talking about, is quite interesting, because I've, but I've actually jumped the gun a little bit, because if we follow this kind of logic chain, the farm appears at the end. So I'm going to try to link all this stuff together. Um, where this all started was, as you described, us looking at the raw ingredients mm-hmm. as the source of whiskey flavor. And that sounds obvious. I mean, probably not to most of your listeners, because most of your listeners will have heard the general idea that 70 to 80 percent of the flavor comes from the cask. It's what everybody in this industry says. Yeah. But as I've said multiple times, it doesn't have to be that way. That's a that's a choice. But it always seems so obvious to us. You look at the brewing industry, the roasted malts they use, there's a ton of flavor there. And that's where we started. You know, cask number one started with the roasted malt recipe. We built our house style on top of that core idea Mm. of raw ingredient flavor. So the thing is, when we started the company, there was a lot of different roasted malts out there that have been used by the brewing industry. So we were able to utilize some of those to make, you know, this kind of, we call this a five malt recipe in our house style. But uh, within two years, we found the limit of what that system hmm. would provide. Okay. And the, the things that were missing there, one was local peat, um, which wasn't happening. It's That's kind of a slightly different issue. But the really, the other big thing was you know, barley varietals themselves. And barley varietals, unlike the wine industry, you just look at that adjacent to the whiskey industry and Mm. they look at, there's, you know, thousands of different wine varietals used by the wine industry around the world. And the whiskey industry uses, you know, a handful, five, you know, Mm. at most really in any one given time. So it was, it was there that the question was posed and we go, okay, why is it that wine grape varietals can exist and you can make different wines out of those and they have their own flavor profile, but we're not doing that in in whiskey. Mm. And 
the answer to that is, is long and complex, but generally the idea is that whiskey and or barley itself is, is part of a commodity system, a commodity agricultural system. Yeah. And it's designed to not do what you see in the wine industry, which is where you see a bunch of different grape varietals produce a bunch of different types of, of wine. It's designed to make the same thing over and over and over again. And it, you know, it's effective at that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, as a, as a machine, you know, it's effective, but all of that stuff prevents you from finding any, you know, terroir influences mm -hmm. in most malted barley because all of it's taken from different places and blended together. It's all the same barley varietal or maybe two or three that were all designed to taste exactly the same. Mm -hmm. um, if they were even allowed to have flavor at all, if flavor would be seen as a defect. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. And, you know, and it would be, you know, grown and sprayed under kind of relatively terrible um, environmental conditions as well. So we started to look at this. We had no idea what we were doing. And we went up to the Skagit Valley for a conference. It's called the Needing Conference back then, 2012. And we, <laughs> we talked to these guys. At, at that time, we were actually going to start our own malting company. And uh, thank God we didn't do that. But we, we were going to start our own malting <laughs> company after we had started Westland. Yeah. Uh, and we sat down opposite from these guys at this conference. And they said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we, we run a single malt distillery and we're trying to, you know, we want to start a multi company as well because we want to do these barley varietals and nobody wants to do it. Here to meet some farmers. What are you guys doing here? They said, we're starting a multi company. And that serendipity was just beautiful. I, I swear it happened exactly like that. Wow. And wow. Uh, the, the thing where that started was there is a, there is this moment in time, this beautiful well, is serendipity um, you know, just this kind of spark that happened mm -hmm. in the Skagit Valley where farmers were looking for a new way to make uh, a new way to make money on barley. There was the researchers there that were basically kicked out of the commodity system, kicked out of the commodity grain system. And then you have people like us who are trying to use new barley varietals. And this is the real challenge with doing something like this mm. is that you need all of those people involved. You need the farmers, the researchers, the maltsters, the distillers, the sure. brewers, and, and ultimately people who are going to buy that whiskey at the tail end. Yeah. So that's that's the origin of where all of this started. And and so from you know not becoming maltsters, you ended up becoming farmers or leaning <laughs> on farmers to become growers. So we well there's a lot of steps that happened in between there. So one of the big things that happened right away was uh, these barley farmers were saying, okay, first of all, they're not just growing barley. They're growing 80 different crops of commercial significance in the Skagit Valley. So this, this valley, which is about an hour's drive north of Seattle, um, if you're me, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's farther from Glasgow. It's one of these few places. It's one of these few places where you don't see mono and bicrop crop agriculture. It's not corn or corn soybean. Yeah. It's, you know, high end agriculture because they can't compete on price. Yeah. So the whole thing is, this is a really expensive part of North America, compete on quality. So they've been growing barley there, but they weren't growing barley to make money. They're growing barley because of agricultural reasons. For every acre of barley that they would grow, they might get three tons of acre uh, per acre to the maltster, mm -hmm. but they put eight tons of organic matter of carbon back into the ground. So if they've got crops that pull up a lot of carbon mm. from the ground, a lot of the like cash crops really do that. Barley puts it back into the soil. Yeah. So that's one big thing. Second thing, lots of fertility in this in these soils, lots of clay, lots of minerals, but it compacts. 
barley and other small grains like wheat and rye shoot to these amazing roots down into the soil very quickly and help to break up that clay soil part. So these farmers yeah. are growing barley for those two reasons, and it breaks disease cycles when you rotate mm -hmm. crops mm -hmm. so that you don't need to use pesticides. It's the old-fashioned way of farming that everybody seems to have forgotten over the past hundred years. Hmm. And so they started with this journey and they said, okay, we, we want to grow barley for somebody, but there's just no – west of the Cascades out here in western Washington, the kind of – when people think of Washington State or Seattle, what they're thinking of, the rainy, drizzly climate, you know, it's not in the commodity zone. Yeah, because the commodity zone, quote unquote, is the, you know, eastern Washington state over to Wisconsin. So it was taking that stuff and Skagit Valley malting saying, you know, let's take these varietals that you're growing in this place that aren't approved for the commodity system and are actually too good. I mean, I'll get to this in a second, too good <laughs> for the commodity system um, and let's malt them. And the thing is, what we have to do is we have to adapt our malting machines when create multi machines that adapt to all of these different barley varietals that you're growing rather than saying you have to grow this one barley varietal even if it doesn't grow in this particular area mm -hmm. uh, and what i mean by this okay. this idea of like too good so literally the grains that they were growing in Skagit were too plump they were too <laughs> they were too big this is actually a more ideal western washington is actually a more ideal place to grow barley um, than the rest of the commodity part of the country. Wow. So literally, like it wouldn't go into the malting machines from stuff that was used to the Dakotas or Wisconsin uh, because it was thriving too much. You know, that's how crazy it is. Well, it, and with <sighs> that said, it, it makes me wonder yeah. a little bit about your production. Obviously, you know, and, and it's been a couple of years since we've been at the distillery with you, but knowing your use of Belgian brewer's yeast, knowing your cold crashing, knowing your clear wort going into and your, your clear wash going into distillation do your production techniques change with changing barley mm. yeah that's a great that's a great question so the the thing is is that we we want to explore barley varietal flavor right at the same time you when you're working you know kind of off piece i guess as it were like when you're outside of the commodity system mm -hmm. There are no rules. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, there is value in the commodity system structure. You know the size of the grain. You know how friable it's going to be. You know how much husk there's going to be, how much yield, etc. I mean, when we're doing all these new varietals, it's like the Wild West in the mash mm -hmm. mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, – so you're trying these new things all the time. And you try to roll with the same system, but to a certain extent, um, you can't sometimes. Great mm -hmm. example, uh, that obsidian that we were talking about earlier, that doesn't have a husk. So, you know, the husk, which is famously used as part of the filtering mechanism in a mash tun. Yeah. This doesn't have that at all. Wow. <laughs> so, and I was, you know, I was, so you just have yeah. to go, go you on. just have to roll with that stuff and just kind of embrace that it's going to be a little bit different. And sometimes in the distillation, it's a little bit different as well. Um, so it's not, you know, while there's a kind of a scientific instinct to try to keep all the variables the same, except for the varietals themselves. Yeah. And we try to as much as possible. There's a, ultimately we're a whiskey distillery and we're making whiskey and it needs to taste good. Mm -hmm. So we're also not going to either make a technique that's going to not work or, or produce a new mix yeah. that we don't think tastes very good. So we got to conform to that. Uh, but, but it okay. seems that besides tasting good, it also has to be affordable. And one of the things, it, you know, the reason the commodity grains become commodity grains is because it's a place where you can reduce your costs do you how aware do you need to be of 
the the economics of this? Mm. Well, we're very aware because actually it's not affordable at all. <laughs> uh, not, not right now. So every everybody everybody is operating in the commodity system. I mean, like there are, there are maybe no exceptions to that, except for people who occasionally use bare barley or mm. an old batch of Golden Promise. Yeah, or not sure. in the commodity system anymore. So you know we're we're utilizing these new barley varietals, and for the most part, they start at double the price per pound, and go up to triple, sometimes even four times the price. Mm-hmm. Um, and a big part of that is like, okay, we can try that, but there needs to be. I mean, we're running a business at the same time. There needs to be results. There needs to be something that's different and distinct. Yep. Yeah. And the same thing is true of like sustainable initiatives, right? If you want to make an organic version of a product or whatever, you know, that is more expensive to do. So the thought process is try to hit all of these buttons at the same time, more sustainable agricultural systems, you know, more economic viability for the farmer and new varietals that are designed to taste really interesting, really amazing. So we combine all that stuff together into this package and and it costs more, but ultimately we're not competing on price with commodity barley and the whiskey that that comes out, including the whiskey that we make ourselves Mm. that is made with commodity uh, barley, right? So um, so the, the ultimate goal, though, Jason, is to try to get there, mm. is to try to get to that point where the cost, maybe not all the way come down to, you know, full commodity prices, because it's it's actually not so much about the, the barley itself as it is the economies of scale that a big maltster has. I mean, a big malting company, I mean, what they're what they're doing is is they're taking barley from all these different parts of a giant growing area mm-hmm. that are, it's all grown the same, right? And it's all dumped into grain elevators. It's all mixed up together. They're not trying to keep anything separate because they're all growing the same varietal because that's that's the point. And then all that stuff goes to the malting company. They're blending it up again, you know, and in rail cars and barges, like it is a big, big, you know, impressive operation, mm-hmm. again, from like an engineering standpoint. So even if you, you know, beat like the yield per acre, Measurement, which we do with some of these new varietals that we're using, we are actually beating industry standard yield per acre. But when you're, you know, you're malting at smaller scale or you want to preserve, you know, one farmer's crop, all that stuff is much more expensive. Sure. And that's okay because we think people are, you know, that's kind of what you're paying for in the whiskey is Mm. is all that stuff. And and that brings me to the last point I was going to make. And then, Joshua, I'll throw it right back over to you. But and one of the things that we sometimes talk about in, in different tastings is the some of the larger players rather than educate the consumer would rather remove a component that potentially confuses a consumer chill filtering being an example right mm. as you just start to mention it here about you believe people will spend their money in that direction mm. how much do you think about the consumer and how much do you think about the education of the consumer to get them to look at that price and instead of saying, pooh, Westland are over there ripping the arse out of it, instead are able to say, I know why this is the price. It seems like a big gamble to take, but you, you've you always been willing to take it. Yeah, we are, uh, our risk tolerance is probably too high <laughs> at Westland. But um, I mean, roughly for the past, probably at least for the past five years, 40% of the liquid that we're laying down, we're putting into casks, is stuff that nobody, including ourselves, has ever done before, right? I mean, just that proportion wow. is, is, yeah. is, you can really tell like where our where our focus is, right? Yeah. So, and and the thing is, a lot of these things we 
they won't pan out. You know, uh, we haven't really had a, we've used 20 different barley varietals at Westland, which is, you know, I think more than, you know, the entire Scottish whiskey industry combines. Sounds like and some of them, you know, none of them haven't, you know, haven't been bad. Some of them though will taste too close to typical mm. Copeland or concerto varietal, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe it won't be super spectacular. So what do you do with that? So there's a lot of risk involved with that as well. In addition to the fact that it's already more expensive, but at the core of it, we believe, I mean, Westland, our, our whole thing from the beginning is, as you were saying at the beginning of this chat here, was looking at flavor coming from raw ingredients, right? Yep. If you're looking for maximum age statement 10, 15, 18, 20, 25 at Westland, and I'm not saying those can't be great whiskeys, you're just not going to find it here, you know? Uh, first of all, because we're a 10-year-old company. Second of all, because our focus is on finding that flavor the way that a winemaker would look at flavor, mm-hmm. the way that a brewer would look at flavor and the way that a chef increasingly would look at flavor, mm-hmm. you know, farm to table dining. And this is these things, we see these, these parallels, right? And we talk about, you know, whiskey consumers, whiskey drinkers, we see these parallels that are happening in these adjacent industries, beer, wine, food. And, and there are so many, so many people who have this approach to the things that they drink that are focused on terroir and provenance um, you know, and unique varietals and things like that. And we believe that the whiskey industry is ripe for that sort of change. That won't be everybody. It won't even be most people, mm-hmm. you know, but there's enough people out there, I think, that are seeing that there are other ways of making whiskey. Yeah. If you look at what is happening in Mezcal, easy, yeah. easy example. Yep. You know, Mezcal to me is the most exciting spirit category in the world, including whiskey. You know, and we make whiskey because of that. The approach that they have in Mezcal is very much similar to what we're trying to do, but they do it as a category, generally speaking. So, so we see the fact that everybody is really, really excited about that stuff and go, okay, there is demand for this, Mm. you know, and it's, and it's not just now, but Mm -hmm. like in the future, because this is years and years and years worth of work. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, every, everything you just said le- leads me into, perfectly leads me into the question that I had. Um, you know, a few years back, uh, Westland was purchased by Remy and, and, and in a way paired you guys up with Brooklade, right? You, you off, Actually, the last time we saw you in person was on Isla, at the Brooklady Distillery during the oh, right. yeah, yeah. Completely, completely by chance, <laughs> yeah, right? Completely yeah, by chance, like, yeah. 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 And and but but what I enjoy about the two distilleries is this part of the story coming out of both distilleries is that you're trying to focus on a sense of place, right? Where where Brooklady is, is talking about Isla and it's talking about Isla barley and what that could potentially do, what that could taste like. And and then here we are talking about Westland and the different barley varietals. But my question is, and I want to make sure that I that I pose it correctly. Do you do you believe in the idea of of terroir, or do you think that there's more differentiation uh, from barley variety to barley variety? And then just to add on to that point. If you believe it is terroir, would you compare it to, say, the wine world, right? Because we, we've been dipping our toe, dipping our toes in, in, in wine during this discussion where, you know, if you want a good Cabernet, well, look to California or look to France because you know, typically speaking, those are, that's where the better Cabernet comes from. 
Like, would you say that it's a, a mixture of the two, that it's not just variety, but it's also the place in which that barley was was grown? Yeah, all of the above. And this terroir is, is a really big, complicated question. The first, the first place to start is with the definition of terroir itself. So one of the, the main things that I think we have lost in the American translation of terroir is the is the idea that it's limited to just the agricultural parts of growing grapes, or in our case here, growing grain. Um, mm. And I, you hear most people, you know, talking about, you know, when it comes to wine, the the spacing of the vines in the vineyard and, and the slope and the aspect and how rocky it is and the calcium carbonate content and all this other stuff, which absolutely does make an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking with, you know, French people, one of the things that they notice when we talk about terroir that they say, oh, you're, you're actually missing the people element, you know, and there's this element of terroir that includes people in their local culture, mm. you know, that also goes into their broad definition of terroir. So under both definitions, I think the answer is yes, is that terroir in whiskey is absolutely a thing. First of all, we can look at, you know, with, um, with barley varietals being grown in the commodity system, terroir is a choice. Unfortunately, it's not an easy choice to make if you're a distiller, because as a distiller, you typically don't have a ton of control, if any, over the commodity system. Yeah. Because what the commodity grain system is designed to do is literally to eliminate environmental terroir ideas. Like that's that's actually the point mm-hmm. is to make it consistent. Terroir differences is the opposite of of you know consistency. So they're trying to take these things and blend them together, and they do blend them together to make a consistent product. And, and not just between different farming areas, different farms, but also between years. They're trying to iron out differences in vintage characteristics as well. Oh, okay. So one of the reasons when there's an argument about just that pure kind of agricultural definition of terroir is that it's focused primarily on you know, what you can see in front of you as an industry and what the most of the whiskey industry sees in front of it is in our case barley but you know the same thing is true for the bourbon industry and corn and all the rest it's this comes from a big homogenous place it's all ironed out to be the same but if you focus on these things individually absolutely you can see these differences in terroir so there's that big part of it all by itself right Mm -hmm. the second thing is that is that human definition and this is where i think you, you use this um, comparison to Brooklady. I think that's really valid here, uh, not just with the differences between what grows on Isla and what grows here in the Pacific Northwest. And there are big differences yeah. in terms of barley agriculture and what goes into that. But there's there's a big people difference here. You know, there's the way that we're approaching things culturally. Um, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, it's blank slate. Everything is brand new. This is obviously a big tech heavy part of the world. You know, there's there's boundless optimism, you know, mm. in trying to come up with new ways of doing things. You also can't fall back on the old ways of doing things because <laughs> you don't know those old ways of doing things. So you, so you just got to keep, yeah. you just got to keep moving forward. And so that's really manifested in taking those, you know, raw ingredients, which have their own environmental terroir. And now the difference is magnified because both distilleries lean into our respective cultures. Brooklady leans into Isla. We lean into Pacific Northwest and we don't try to, you know, homogenize it or make it be like some, you know, holy standard somewhere. And so we, we try to embrace that. And there's there's a ton of ways that both distilleries do that. Well, and I have to say with this pairing in mind, the, the two best hours I've spent in 
all of lockdown and all of the last COVID 13 months or so was the two hours of you and Adam Hannett having a conversation on Instagram, those two separate one hour blocks. I, gosh, that was the best 120 minutes spent. Listening to the two of you is brilliant. I actually, I emailed you shortly after watching the second one and I, I said, I'm watching the future of the whiskey industry right here. And it was so exciting, incredibly exciting to see the way the two of you think about the industry and think about distilleries, distilling, but also farmers and barley and wood. It's really remarkable. So I had to get that on wax, the, giving you the... Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you very much. We do feed off of each other. We don't have exactly the same approach. You know, there's, there isn't like a centralized like strategy that we both have. It's just that the reason we're sister distilleries is because we both believe the same thing, you know, and it's not like we have to constantly check, you know, are you being good at terroir? Are you being good at terroir? You know, like it's just very natural to us. And then we get ourselves together you know, and we just have a blast talking about what the possibilities are, you know, and they'll have a perspective that we couldn't possibly have and, and vice versa and things. And, and, and that really helps. I mean, that's so important. This idea of perspective, you know, there are so many things that we wanted to do and tried to do, you know, when we set out on this journey, in 2012 to get out of a commodity system to find these new barley varietals, you know, I had no idea that there was such a thing as red barley, mm-hmm. you know, and nobody, did, like, <laughs> nobody had seen that stuff before. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I used to joke as kind of true, like you show that to people in like a, you know, the Scottish whiskey industry and they'll think that it's covered in some sort of advanced mold, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's just, it's just, you know, you just don't see it at all. And the reason why we're able to, to push forward in this way is because we do have these perspectives that are coming at it with the same degree of passion that we are. Um, not just between us as whiskey makers, us in Brooklady, but us Skagit Valley malting, they're passionate about malting, um, you know, and, and that the bread lab and the farmers themselves, they're able to think of things and considerations that we could never dream of because we don't come from that world. And we have, we have all of that stuff. We let it, you know, we let all that stuff grow together. Yeah, and, and with that said, if, if I can make a, a recommendation again that I made a, an episode or two ago, the the book by Dan Barber, The Third Plate, talks more about the bread lab and talks more about the Skagit Valley. And actually in, in there he talks about the way in which something like barley breaks down the soil and the value to farmers through that as well. So for all listeners who are interested in that aspect definitely pick up Dan Barber's book, The Third Plate. It's, it's well worth your time and well worth your hard-earned pennies. With all yeah, of this... there's a lot of... Go on. I was just going to say, there's just so much to learn from the, uh, from the world of cuisine, you know, from chefs, from the farm-to-table. Um, I don't know if you'd call it an industry, but movement anyways. Mm-hmm. And I think we learn more from chefs, I feel like at least I do at this moment in time, like I learn more from chefs than I do from the rest of the whiskey industry, actually by far, Hmm. you know, there's just a lot of ideas. And to be fair, they can develop ideas much faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's take this thing, grow this thing, cook this thing, eat result, change. Whereas, you know, we're just about ready to release the first whiskey of this project that started nine years ago, you know, (laughs) which brings us very nicely to what we're about to talk about is this upcoming project. So please take it away, Matt. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why we're here talking to you guys today is because, well, besides the fact that we like both of you, is uh, 
Yeah, cheers. I, I didn't have to. I wasn't forced to say that at all. So yeah, I, I can um, see Steve Hawley <laughs> in the background there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, man. So we just have you know this new whiskey. Every everything that we've been building towards here over these past you know nine years. It's crazy to say because it was summer of 2012 when we went to this conference mm. uh, at the at the Bread Lab, Skagit Valley, uh, Washington State University Extension Center. And we started working with these guys at the time. Skagit Valley Malting was a machine in a garage. I mean, it's very much like West Coast, you know, entrepreneurial mm. story, yeah. you know, and there's there's always a garage involved. And, <laughs> you know, they'd be, they're, yes. they're embarrassed to actually show this machine, you know, and it was like, seriously, like the nicest, like, <laughs> technological marvel, you know, that's this 50-gallon drum, you know, malting machine that they started with. But anyways, that that program has scaled and scaled and scaled to the point where now they've got all these machines that are 10 ton malting machines. Each one is designed to operate independently so that they can focus on different barley varietals. Mm. And so what we've got now is, is we've been using barley from Skagit Valley malting and now a couple of other craft maltsters that have popped up since they opened, but since 2014. Mm. And the whole idea with this program is to focus on, breaking out of the commodity system to find new barley varietals, you know, maybe they could be approved by the commodity system, but typically the ones that are super interesting are not approved by the commodity system. So looking for barley varietals that have a lot of interesting flavor, which would automatically get them kicked out of the commodity system. It could be a two row. It could be a six row. It could be a winter, could be a spring. It doesn't matter what it is. So we've been working with them over these you know, past six, seven years in terms of actually making whiskey out of it. And now we are finally ready to release the first edition of a whiskey series that is going to kind of output the results of this work. And that whiskey we're calling Colere. Colere is a Latin word. It means to cultivate. And the whole idea there is, is that this is a fundamentally new way of us looking at barley and our own relationship to barley agriculture. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just the varietals themselves. It's, it's the whole system that goes into it. So... Colere edition one is, is this amazing. The story behind it is actually really cool because this whole story in Skagit Valley kicked off with uh, this farmer who was growing this varietal called Alba. It's a winter six row varietal. Hmm. And he was saying, look, I'm growing this barley varietal here. It's not on the proved commodity system. And, but I'm growing it because it's doing these amazing things for my fields. He's a, he was a tulip farmer he says it's just making his his fields really really fertile after he's you know he plants this barley varietal in there. So, but you know, it, barley is the 80th most valuable crop, the literally the least valuable crop grown in the Skagit Valley. And so he says, I need I need to grow this barley for all of these agriculture agricultural reasons and agronomic reasons. But there's no way for me to sell it because it doesn't go into the commodity system. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So he started working with the bread lab and at, you know, at the time was the infant idea of Skagit Valley malting. This was in 2009, I guess. And they said, okay, we're going to take this barley varietal and malt it and adapt our malting machines to fit this six row winter barley varietal, neither of which, you know, in North America, we're not using six row in, you know, beer style mm-hmm. barleys. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also not using winter barleys because basically everywhere except for Western Washington, winter barley doesn't really survive. Hmm. It's too cold in the winter. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So this whole conversation started around this varietal and that happens to be 
it was a you know a coincidence, but it happens to be the first edition of Colary this year is using that varietal. Even though we've used twenty different ones, it happened to be this was the first one that we were really really excited about yeah. and wanted to release. Mm. So there's kind of some some something beautiful that's that's happened there. But the whole idea behind this is to focus on varietal flavor. Now with varietal flavor, you are you've got to be a little bit careful. Now for everybody who's listening, if you're familiar with uh, with Westland, you know our use of roasted malts and new oak as well. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea yep. there is increase the malty part of the the whiskey. If you increase the malty part of the whiskey, you can increase oak. So typically, you don't find a lot of new oak uh, in single malt. So we're trying to basically make the volume louder on both sides, but still remain balanced. Mm-hmm. With barley varietal flavor, it's not nearly as loud, you know, quote unquote, as as roast flavor. So we've tempered down the oak characteristic as well. So uniquely for a Westland product, actually, this will be the first time that a consistent, you know, each edition of Colere, you know, will be different, but it will be an annual style series, at least for the foreseeable future, you won't see any new oak at all. Mm. So we're using a mixture of refill Westland casks, casks that we've used once before for our American Oak Expressions, and refill bourbon casks to achieve that nice level of balance between the barley varietal flavor Perfect. and the cask flavor. And, and I, was, I was just going to ask that. I'm sorry to step on your toes here, Jason, but you said something um, earlier on, which, which I really loved, and, and I've been, you mentioned it before, but I, I've been thinking about it this entire conversation where the common mantra is 70% of your flavor comes from the casks, but that's a choice. And so if you're looking to highlight the flavor of the barley, I was going to ask what the cask style is because you don't want to hide it, right? One of the beautiful things about bourbon is that you have this lovely whack of, you know, it's these oak-driven flavors, but the biggest problem with bourbon is you can't get yourself out of that box because it's so cask-driven. But so here you're, you're kind of, you're stepping back. So, so let me ask you, you said you're using a combination of ex-Westland casks and ex-bourbon casks. You use a variety of casks for, for different Westland products and projects. So do you specify which ex-Westland casks they are and, and why you use them? So when I say ex-Westland, what I'm really meaning is the two types of new oak that we would use for virgin American white oak filling. So so new American white oak. So um, what are called the Cooper Select and Cooper's Reserve Series from Independent State Company. Uh, both air-dried, 18, 24 months, number three char in one, 24-month uh, 24 air-drying, and a light char on the other. So we're taking those, and, I mean, they're being used for a variety of things. Sometimes they might be peat. Um, five-malt recipe, occasionally it might just be pale barley in there. Uh, it's kind of a blending tool. But for the most part, what we're getting out of this, and certainly what we wanted to use um, with Colere, is stuff that all came from probably from the five malt recipe just to remain some degree of have some degree of consistency. Mm. Um, but we've tried to keep that, you know, it's been interesting because again, this is not a, it's not a science project. Our goal <laughs> is to make a really good whiskey and release it. So we, we try, we try to balance. And I, I say that like I'm denigrating science, but I'm not, I just, <laughs> I the thing is, is there's, we're, we're trying very hard to, you know, focus on that barley varietal flavor but also we're trying to make a good whiskey first and foremost, right? So that's the big yeah. focus. Which leads us perfectly to, to the, the part that Joshua stepped on my toes just a second ago. Is You're Josh and I are going to taste this in the next segment of the podcast. 
But sitting with you today, how do you describe the flavors of Calarian? And where do you taste this Alba barley in relation to this wood maturation that you've been in charge mm, of? Excellent question. Yeah, so the first way that I would describe it, you know, and I've been able to look at it, and maybe maybe if somebody has, um, you know, a single cask at home they've purchased from us, that was a, a first fill bourbon, you know, they might be able to roughly compare, you know, roughly compare, you know, like for like, this is 50% ABV, so it's not full cask strength. But in general, what we're finding is there's a, most of the time in our ex-bourbon cask, there's, there's the bright kind of citrusy fruitiness and citrus peel and stuff like that. This is trending more towards um, grape fruitiness and also, it honestly really reminds me of like a, like a white burgundy. Hmm. You know, there's a, hmm. um, there's just something about, I mean, especially, you know, the kind of the funkier, you know, white burgundies that have some degree of, um, you know, savoriness to them mm. as well. I don't know if that makes sense, but okay. like, you know, it's not like, not like, you know, Napa Chardonnay, but like white burgundy style, you know? So, um, so it has some, some nuttiness. It has some like gingerbread cake, mm. uh, which is really interesting to it as well. Ooh. So it's, but the whole idea is that it's, you know, it's definitely lighter, you know, it's more elegant than like Gariana, which is, you know, a riot, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so Colary is, is a lot more lighter and a lot more, especially if people are, are really big fans of refill casks or more traditionally styled whiskeys that come out of Scotland. Whereas a lot of our stuff has a lot of new oak. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's going to kind of hit really nicely for a lot of people. So, uh, but you guys are going to taste it. We are indeed. Soon, yeah, so, I'm, yeah, I'm really intrigued because years ago when we made the the Whiskey Jubilee blend with you and we had a chance to taste casks of Washington pale malt, it was such a very different style of Westland from what we were yeah. used to. And mm. in using Westland in some of my tastings, and I just I just poured Coldfoot at a tasting the other week, I'm always talking about your five malt mash bill, right? I'm always talking about the chocolate malt. I'm always talking about how you're a a whiskey distillery for beer lovers. And if you know your barley going in from your beer circles, boy, are you going to love Westland. Mm. And so the thought of there being a different string in that bowl is really interesting. And I'm I'm really excited to taste this and, and to taste this different barley which is a thing we've been exploring with with others as well so yeah i'm really intrigued and and you know i love seeing this different side of the distillery with that in mind in terms of positioning this for the consumer you've got gariana which is wonderful and an annual release now you're introducing calera and that will now be an annual release it's not cholera, Jason. That's it's cholera. So I didn't. It's, I tried not to say yeah, cholera. cholera. It's cholera. 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 It sounds Irish to cholera. me. Cholera. Cholera. Uh, it's cholera. It's the beer, Jason. I think you're. It's plugged up your ears. <laughs> uh, cholera. <laughs> so cholera. So um, so yeah. So cholera is part of the outpost range. So we had Gariana. It was kind of on its own for a while. Mm. And and what we were doing with Gariana as a, as a way of exploring the Gariana Oaks, you know, its own provenance and its own flavor profile and, and how it interacts with the rest of Westland's house style. 
that was a model for what we wanted to do with barley, barley varietals, mm-hmm. eventually get into, you know, that traditional kind of environmental terroir, field to field variations, all that other stuff, as well as our project with Solom, uh, which is the local peat with Washington State peat. And the important thing with the outpost range, these three collection of whiskeys, you know, Gariana, Colere, Solom, is that each one is about exploration, about pushing the idea of single malt here in the Pacific Northwest further mm-hmm. yeah, and releasing that in whiskey form. So each one is an annual edition style series. Garyana has been released roughly the same time um, every year since 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colere will be doing the same thing. So Garyana in the fall, Colere in the spring, mm-hmm. which we think times really nicely uh, with the barley planting sure. um, season as well as just the characteristic of Colere itself as a liquid. And then Solon will join in the in the winter, you know, in the depth of winter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think works really nicely with Pete. So once we get there, which is, you know, year and a half, two years away. So So tell us more about Solon. That's Solum. the general idea. We haven't had you on the podcast in, in so very long. I haven't spoken with you about Solon. You want to put some leaves on those branches for us? Yeah, Solon, um, you know, basically Worst kept secret in the whiskey industry. I mean, not like we were really trying to keep it a secret, but, uh, you know, this idea of, of sourcing peat from Washington State, uh, which, again, gets tied back to our work with Skagit Valley Malting, you know, going up there, talking to them. Um, you know, we dug up peat in 2011 from this local bog. No malting company in America makes peated malt or didn't at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was that, you know, as much as the barley varietals was, was the impetus for going up to Skagit Valley and thinking about starting our own malting company and then changing our minds and saying, actually, you guys did. So that was great. Good decision. Um, so we worked with them, but, but Solom, I think of the three projects, you know, Gariana, Colere, Solom, you know, Solom I think is the trickiest because there are people that exist out there in the oak industry. Even if Gariana is a new oak fundamentally to be using, there are coopers in this country and there are people who know how to use oak. And there's a lot of people who know oak science you know, even if our barley varietals are, are outside the commodity system and they, they look crazy, they do different things. So a lot of people who understand barley and its implication on flavor and, and beer, especially, mm-hmm. and sometimes spirits. Pete, there's none of that in this country. Yeah, none sure. of it. Yeah. And so we're, we're, we're very much learning that, you know, all this stuff from the ground up to try to, you know, make a peated whiskey, which is in the first time that, to the best of my knowledge, the first time that peated malt has been made commercially by a maltster ever in this country. So seems like a fair claim. I mean, I mean, it, I mean, if somebody wants to prove me wrong, (laughs) I'm happy to, it's not like something I really, it's not like I stand behind it with, you know, if somebody shows me where I'll, I'll, I'll correct it, but I haven't heard of anything. I've researched it. I haven't been able to find anything. So it would never needed it as a fuel source in this country. Yeah. So everything is, is brand new with this. And so that project started using that peat, uh, that peated malt in 2016 and laying down those casks, laying down those mm-hmm. casks. And the same approach to casks that we're using in Colere is being used in Solon, uh, which okay. is let's make sure that we're not going to overpower the flavor of the peat. Let's make sure that stands out a little bit. So we're using used casks. That's also meaning longer maturation. Mm-hmm. So we've been patient with this, despite that it's been a five plus years. We think it's going to be a couple more, you know, just just let it, let it happen naturally. So... Mm-hmm. You know, that project has been a blast. I mean, it's been full of, you know, ups and downs, if I'm, if I'm very honest. You know, we're learning these things. We don't know, you know, this peat is very different from Scottish peat. Like, the stuff that grows in the bog is very, very different. There's moss, but there's also lots of, you know, shrub vegetation, deciduous vegetation that grows and drops its leaves in there. It's not 
you know, this is not going to be Isla where it's like pure, you know, sphagnum moss decaying into medicinal flavors. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit wilder than that. And you can taste it in some of the samples we've done, the blind tastings we've done internally. So we're at this point now where we're confident in the liquid enough, obviously, to announce the release date. So now we're at this point where we want to talk about, because you guys, you know, we're, we're very transparent. We want to talk about the things we do. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Solemn Edition 1 is going to taste like. I don't know <laughs> what the exploration is going to be. Uh-huh. And that's part of the point, is to be transparent about this process. The first time, you know, a kind of full peated whiskey from end to end has been made in this country, to the best of my knowledge. There's been a couple of distilleries that have kind of smoked some, you know, previously made malts in-house, which I think is different. That's a technical thing, but different from peating yeah. as a as a as a task. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but an end to end system here, this is quite new. So we don't know, for example, if Solum is going to be about the exploration within the different areas of the bog at first, different depths of the peat in the bog, or will it be more about this is roughly what we're getting in this bog, comparing that to other aspects of our house style, kind of like what we're doing with Gariana right now. Mm-hmm. Because we could actually kind of pursue all these different areas of exploration, and we've got to, you know, we've got to find some runway, you know. So that's the part that we're working on right now, is to say not just what would we do with Solemn One, because yeah. that would be kind of easy, but where could we go that would provide a a, a train for everybody to follow, including mm-hmm. ourselves, mm-hmm. things to explore. So we just wanted to be just put that out in the open because people were gonna people were gonna ask us about it anyway. So might as well talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 in terms of not knowing necessarily what the flavor profile of, of number one will be when you've held that peated malted barley in your hand and you've been using in the past you've used highland peated malt and you've been on isla you've been at brooklady i guess that's highland peated malt as well but you've been on isla and you've you've held isla peated malt in your hand what characteristics did you get from mm. the peated malt that will go into Solum? Well, the thing is we're exploring technique as well. So we haven't used the consistent technique throughout this whole process as we've been making Solum. So there's no <laughs> consistent, you know, each batch has been slightly different yeah, as we're point. refining the technique and working with the maltster. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I don't know that I'd be able to say in the malt itself yep. and also just because we haven't really settled on like the ideal technique, even if there is such a thing, maybe we'll never settle on that. But generally what I personally have found in tasting the new makes and the stuff that is mature, we did a, a tasting a couple months ago, 20 different samples, you know, blind tasting um, from the rack houses. Mm. And generally what I taste is kind of a Pete Mezcal mashup. Oh, if wow. You if you want to Sold. look at it that way. No, I don't. I mean, that's with some things and some of them are more pronounced than others, yeah. you know, but this, but this is part of, we're still learning, you know, we're still very much trying to get into why does it taste that way? Is that repeatable? Did we do that? Was, <laughs> was that the beat, you know, it's, yeah. and so there's, there's just so much there to process um, that we're still trying to figure out. So what I can say at the moment is that it is different from Scottish Pete, which I'm very thankful for. Um, cause we do want it to be different. I mean, it is what it is, but it's cool that it's different, mm-hmm. but I don't, ha- how much of that difference will be magnified in Solemn version one. Mm-hmm. I don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you had mentioned it's, it's, a, 
uh, a mashup between mescal and, and peat. That's actually the the password to my wallet. So 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 you've nailed it. You've nailed it there. Um, <laughs> so a, a a couple of things. First first off, we're about an hour into the conversation, so I, I can imagine we we want to start winding down in a little bit. We always have a closing question to ask, and and of course I don't want to cut Jason off. And and if there's something you wanted to mention, Matt, of course I I, I want to give you that space. But you had mentioned earlier that at this point, forty percent of what you're laying down is this different slash unique stuff that has not been not just traditional to the U.S. but not traditional to to Westland from from where you started, right? And so I'm curious, as you're adjusting what you're laying down, how, if at all, ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, cask 6293. Oh, I have that right here. Right there. I have it somewhere. Hey, there we go. I'm going to pour that too. Um, so, so I'm wondering, what does that do to your, to your current core range? And do you, you know, right now you, you have a, a, a specific distillery characteristic, right? When I taste a, when I taste Westland American oak, right? That's what I use. When I want to introduce someone to Westland, I pour that first because in my opinion, this is, this is you guys putting your, your, your foot forward, right? This is, this is us, everybody. If you like it, come explore the rest of the things. So what is this new production going to do to your core range? And will it affect... Let me, yeah, just go before ahead, Jason. you finish your question... Yeah, go ahead. Step all far, over me, Jason, far, please. You're yeah. far too modest to say this. But right. a couple of episodes ago, Matt, you won't know this at this time, but Joshua and I named 10 whiskeys that our listeners, people in whiskey, must have on their shelves. Must have. And one of those 10 was Westland American Oak. That's... Yeah. That's how important we think that whiskey is. So with that said, that adds to the context of the question being posed by Joshua here. <laughs> it does. No, definitely. The stakes, the stakes are very much higher. Well, first of all, that's very kind of you to say. Um, and we love American oak as well. Um, you know, the thing about Westland, I, I think a lot of people will try to box Westland in, into a particular um, – flavor profile manifestation. We talk about house style a lot, right? Yeah. And a lot of distilleries, they have a house style and it doesn't vary. The constant about Westland is that we are pushing forward, mm. right? The, the constant, the one thing that is, and this is not a thing you can taste in a house style, <laughs> but the constant at the core of what Westland is, is forward motion. You're like the prog rock of whiskey producers. Single malt. <laughs> basically i guess yeah this is absolutely so um i'm not gonna i i can't i can't hang in conversations on prog rock so i'm not gonna fall into it's, that it's, it's a very it's okay. small group of people matt it's okay to exactly, not be part yes. of it there is there is one is guy joshua's got a little got a little puppet he talks to in his basement. <laughs> yeah there's one guy living in his mom's basement that is loving this part of the conversation right now anyway <laughs> continue <laughs> So, um, so the whole the whole ethos of Westland is that there is possibilities to explore in single malts, and that is manifested in the things that you talked about, you know, Jason, that were uh, fundamental to our house style, you know, 
whiskey for beer lovers, roasted malts, Belgian yeast, you know, the new American oak, but that has progressed and grown over the past 10 years, or at least mm-hmm. the manifestation of those ideas has, has progressed and grown. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're at this point now where we've, we've got to a, a couple of key decision points. You know, one is a lot of the things that we wanted to do at the very beginning, we had to put these systems into place, you know, like the local peat and the, these different barley varietals that, that takes an immense amount of work. Whereas like the roasted malts was off the shelf. It never been really done before. I mean, Stranahan's was before us. And I suppose the mm-hmm. um, Glenn Moore and you signet, you know, mm-hmm. done before, mm-hmm. but there was really no, sure. you know, living knowledge of that. So we have all these things that we've been working on are now kind of in the system and are part of this larger, you know, these are part of our stocks. We're also trying to do a couple of big things. One is we're trying to um, increase our sustainability initiatives mm-hmm. and lower our carbon footprint. And we're also trying to say, you know, if, and maybe you guys have heard this before, somebody asks the question, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? In terms of innovation, the answer is always, does this further the idea of making single malt in the Pacific Northwest? Mm. Yes or no. Yeah. And if it's no, yeah. then typically we don't do it. There's a couple of exceptions to that, mm. but typically we don't do it. And now we are at a point where we've made a couple of big decisions. One is we've stopped sourcing peated malt from Baird's in Scotland. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with Baird's peated malt in Scotland. It's amazing from a quality perspective, but we're really happy with what's going on with our own local peat. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is we've stopped using old sherry wine casks from Spain. Now that has a couple of really big implications. We've got, I mean, we've got, we've been making a lot of whiskey for, for some time now. So we've got stocks of that available. We've kind of made this decision that we're at a point where Westland, we've got these things with Garyon and Colere and, and soon to be Solum. And we'll have these things that are, that are rotating throughout the year, you know, three new whiskeys, Every year, you yeah. know, constantly. This will be a core part of what Westland is going forward. And I kind of like to think like the outpost range is very much like, you know, kind of where the, the heartbeat of Westland is, you know, as we go forward. But there's still so much value, and I, I really do mean this seriously, in having, you know, a product that is consistent in terms of um, flavor profile, price point, and everything right. else like that. So right. um, we are actually um, – slowly phasing out the core range um, in all markets, some sooner rather than later. And we are replacing it with one USQ. This has not yet been announced, so your listeners will be the first to hear this. Well, so thank you. This is, uh, this is Westland, just very simply, Westland American Single Malt Whiskey. So this new mm. SKU, this is going to become our new flagship uh, SKU that's going to be out there. Very, very similar to, well, no, it, it depends. It'll be interesting to have you guys taste it because we've got perceptions on it, but you know, we haven't exposed it to a lot of people yet. Um, the core part of what you know about Westland's house style is the same here. Roasted malts, Belgian yeast. I mean, everything has been Belgian yeast, new American oak. Yeah. We've just got some other tools in the toolkit that we didn't have eight years ago when we first released American oak that now we're able to deploy, you know, in a, in a new product that will go for an indefinite amount of time. Hmm. Uh, so there's there's a little bit of um, Oloroso sherry in the blends, hmm. um, and there's a little bit I personally think sub threshold peat in the blend, um, about twelve percent <laughs> if I remember correctly. Hmm. Okay. So it'll be interesting to see how people taste it. Peat we've discovered, you know, our blender Shane really likes peat 
at a really low level because it adds an element of spice and, and uh, a length to the finish yeah. yep. that people can't quite quantify, but is there. So, um, so we've just, um, that product is just now making its way out to markets around the U S we're in kind of stealth mode right now, actually. Oh, um, wow. But this, this is a really, really exciting, you know, new whiskey for us kind of all at the same time, right? We've got Gary on, you know, Colera is launching, We've got this new product, um, you know, that we're putting out that kind of, you know, simplifies the entry points. And if people are really, you know, big fans of our, you know, traditional old sherry casks and our, you know, Scottish peated malt, we still got a lot of that stuff in the warehouse and we'll release those as single casks, mm-hmm. you know, even with you guys, you know, and said it. we'll be able to, it. I said it. So that commits it. That's an oral contract. Yay. So, um, <laughs> So, so that's, so we want to uh, actually boost up our single cast program again, um, and offer more of that, more of that stuff as well. So that's kind of the shift that is coming wow. within Westland. Wow. Wow. That's, that's wow. really interesting. So just to be clear, so you're talking about one standard bottling that will be available consistently and then three annual releases, one coming out in the spring, two coming out in the fall. And those will be the four things One that the fall. lovers of Wesley could look for. And then some single casks on top of that. I know you've got your distillery cask program, which we have taken advantage of many, many, many times. Will there be Westland distillery single cask picks on retail shelves in America or elsewhere? Yeah, if you mean, I mean, are distillery branded? Yeah, yeah. Single cast, yeah, exactly. So, so this is kind of it allows us to to by consolidating the bottom ends, we're able to make you know to you know within distribution in the U.S. There's only so much you can really do, but from experience, you know, there's a lot of complexity involved with managing a bunch of different SKUs, especially if you want to release like a new annual edition, mm-hmm. you know, once a year. We're kind of, if I'm honest, like testing the three tier system here. You know, there's it's it's complex. Yes, you know, it is. I don't man. mean testing yeah. in terms of trying to get around it. I just mean like it's to to get something in every market at the same time, you know, new edition. It's different from the last edition. You know, we think, you know, there's a lot of similarities to the wine industry. Wait, this is a new vintage, different than the old vintage. Mm-hmm. But Good point. Anyways, yep. so to be able to drop that the same, you know, with with the outpost range, that's that's a lot of logistical heavy lifting, generally speaking. So to be able to do that and have that reliable reliably in retail and um you know, with bars and restaurants, and then to be able to deploy single cast or maybe other, you know, one-off limited releases, you know, per market, depending upon what people want, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we take that opportunity as as it comes, actually. Yeah, power to you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and, and again, you may not know the answer to this because it might still be in the, in the still-to-come future, but do you have a sense of the number of bottles involved with, you know, say a Gariana release going forward, uh, um, a Solemn release going forward. Do, do, do you have a sense of what that looks like on an annual release? What I do know is that because we've got a head start with Gariana, we'll be a little bit out ahead of um, what we're able to do with Calaria. I see this popped up just shy of 2,900 bottles for Calaria Edition 1. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to, we're working on Edition 2 right now, um, you know, the selection process of that. Mm-hmm. That'll, that'll take some time to to get underway. Um, so I think, I think in general, like 50%, we kind of like five years from now, let's say five years from now, 
of the three of them, 50% of that will be Garyana and then Colere and Solom will make up the remaining 25 and 25, uh, just by stock limitations mm-hmm. alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but we'll see, you know, it depends on how, you know, some markets really, really respond to Pete, you know, like Scandinavia and Japan, like yeah, they sure. love Pete up there. So maybe, you know, so maybe that becomes a Solom hotspot or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's stuff like that we still have to figure out. That sounds like something you yeah. should see your doctor about. If if you develop a solemn hotspot, <laughs> a solemn hotspot, yeah, please, please please see a healthcare professional. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to see if I could get Matt Hoffman to laugh one more time before we get out of here. So check. <laughs> I'm glad I br- could bring you joy, Jason. Thank you, so sir. To, Thank you. Two things I, I want to correct Jason here uh, because Kalare will be in the spring. Garyana will be in the it. fall. It's not cholera either. It's Kalare. Colare. Colare. So Colare. Colare, thank you. Will will be in the spring. Gariana will remain a fall release in Solemn, which I think you said did you say was twenty twenty? Yeah, in, in the winter time, twenty twenty three, yeah. So that'll be a winter release. So that it won't be two fall releases and one spring release. It'll be spring, fall, and winter. So I'm just correcting you. Yeah, and, and you know, Gariana is ideally like late September, early October. Okay. You know, there's a good amount of space in there. Okay. So basically four months apart hmm. for each one, right? Look at Three whiskeys four months apart. Yeah. It's all planned so, shit. So, so I, feel as, I feel as if we spent the majority of the episode answering our final question, which is what are you most excited for <laughs> looking <laughs> forward? And so... Let me let me flip it a little bit. What do you see as potential obstacles moving forward, and and do you see some some opportunities to overcome them? Like like these are big stories you're telling, so I imagine one obstacle may be a bit of education. What are the other things you see that you need to do to make all of these new projects the success that it that it that it will become? Uh, first thing would be to get rid of whiskey tariffs to Europe, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know if that counts, but that's yeah. That's those are supposed those are supposed to double in June to fifty percent oh, tariff. No. Oh, just heard that. Just, just heard brutal. that. Yep, that's brutal. Oh. So um, that aside, which is not up to us, it's out of our control. Um, I mean, what we're talking about here, especially with Kaleri, Kaleri is one of if not the most significant whiskeys we've ever made. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in terms of flavor profile or one's better than the other. That's not, that's how do you do that anyway? The, the point is, is, is what it means for us in terms of how we look at the fundamental building block of single mm-hmm. malt, which is, which is barley. Yeah. And even ourselves, you know, we're still using commodity barley and we're making some, you know, big improvements to that we're going to be using hundred percent sustainable agriculture by 2025. Wow. Um, so there's some big ch- changes that are happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in the meantime, you know, what we're talking about, you, you know, you can, I made the comparison to like age statements and stuff like that earlier. You know, there's a lot of people for whom Westland doesn't make sense because we don't play like the typical single malt age statements, the distilleries, you know, the, the, the line arms are this angle, you know, all, we have all that stuff and all that stuff is there, yeah. but we're just talking about fundamentally different things. So we're really pushing that here. However, anytime that we've talked about this project, we've been working on the Skadge Valley, because we haven't been shy about talking about it either, because it's super exciting. Yeah. You know, every time everybody's just been blown away and stoked by it. So now we finally have a product 
coming from that region mm. and of that work that we've been doing. So we are hopeful that that's, you know, that that's kind of on its way up, but there is a definitely a big challenge there because for as much as we're already, you know, countercultural in whiskey, we're doing that. And I don't mean that in like a, in a punk rock, in a prog rock sort of thing. Oh yeah, there you go. You know, uh, uh, nice. Um, getting into dangerous waters here. Yeah, um, yeah. Retreat, retreat. But, <laughs> yeah, retreat. Keep going, uh, keep going, um, keep going. <laughs> but, but we're really, you know, we're not, we're not slowing down. Yeah. And that's, you know, we're, we didn't, we didn't, we're not focus grouping things. We're not, you know, looking at Instagram trends. You know, we are making whiskey that we, believe in and there's no precedent for and that is a risky proposition and it will take a lot it, frankly it will take a ton of hard work for as much as you know you guys have been super supportive and, and you guys get it and a lot of your listeners get it there's you know there's a lot more people out there yeah. who are still learning about whiskey or or who you know this doesn't fit their idea of whiskey and that's okay you know mm. you know there's plenty of whiskey fish in the whiskey pond so you know what we're trying to do is just continue to build this narrative around this is what whiskey can be and can mm. we get people to get that light bulb moment where it goes off so i don't see those challenges it's just more like it's just going to be you know a lot of hard fun work but hard work sure yeah That's... yep yeah there could be there could be fun in pushing water uphill you find those little successes <laughs> right where you where you're, you're educating people and, and i think you made a, a, an excellent point right there's there's something so magical in witnessing an aha moment Right, it's just okay. They yeah. get it, right? And and then, and then you move on. You've pushed water up that hill. Let's move to the next hill. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we live for that stuff. I mean, that's been true for Westland since we started our business. But now we're at this point where the aha moment is becoming much bigger, and the implications mm. ripple beyond Westland. We get into conversations about agriculture. Yeah. We get into conversations about farming. You know, just the stakes are a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, we're learning all this stuff at the same time, too. So it just prompts these questions to which we may not have answers yet. And I just, you know, there's a certain, I think there's a certain type of whiskey consumer. I think there's more of them all the time. I truly do. Who love intellectual, who have intellectual curiosity and love, you know, love the idea that this category is not, you know, a dead, you know, category made the same way for 200 years, but as a living, breathing, dynamic thing that we're all very passionate about and that's who this whiskey is for oh that's the perfect that's the mic drop that's <laughs> that it that is the mic drop <laughs> well matt thank you so much this has been a fun and just just a wonderful way to catch up but really enlightening and there's certain episodes that i go back to 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 listen to to our guest and and learn and re-educate myself and and the Matt Hoffman ones are always ones where uh, I kind of go back to more often than the others. So, so I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks, thanks both. It's a pleasure. Really, anytime. Thanks ever so much to Matt. As we said leading into that, what a catch-up. You know, you could tell by the conversation that we haven't been traveling. Yeah. We haven't been in Seattle. We haven't <laughs> yeah. been in the distillery. We haven't mm. been bumping into Matt at festivals around the country. You know, it, yeah. it's... <laughs> or on island. It really showed. <laughs> yeah, right? Right. Yeah. It really showed. And I feel much better about 
my Westland knowledge and my Westland experience having got to sit down and just cover the bases and yeah. get caught up. And it, it, it is interesting the way he talks about where the special editions will lie, mm-hmm. you know, three annual special editions, then casks, individual casks being for release at the distillery, mm-hmm. and then a single American single malt product as an yeah. OB representing them. And, and so it gives you four things of a year to move among. And then, of course, if you can get to Seattle, if you know somebody in Washington State, there's some additional wrinkles there. So it's, it's an interesting approach. It, it is, and, and I'm hoping that it allows them to tighten up their story a little bit to, to the American consuming well, actually, I take that back. Not just to the American consuming public, but I would say to to the rest of the world as well. Again, if 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 most people, when they think of America, think of bourbon and rye, they're going to be a hundred miles off base when it comes to Westland, right? And and I oh yeah, and I just I'm always thinking about how Westland has to tell their story. And, and and so I'm hoping that them calling down the line a little bit, getting a bit more focused on how they're putting their brand forward, hopefully that'll help them to educate, not not get around the story, but get ahead of the story separately. Because we're both, we both have this uh, colare, 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 colare. This rem- this reminds me, we might have said this on the podcast before, you know, it is season five. Yeah. But when you and I went to Italy with our wives for my brother's <laughs> wedding and we landed in Rome, we started driving and we'd flown overnight and we'd landed first thing in the morning and we were all kind of bleary eyed and we needed some coffee. Desperately. Um, to, to get us up into Tuscany, which, you know, foie, foie, foie. And... We stopped essentially at a service station, right? <laughs> where, you, where you walk in and it was so brilliant because God bless you, you, you took charge of the situation and we pushed you forward to be the one making the order. You seem to have this you know, white man confidence about you. <laughs> well, I, it wasn't just the confidence of a middle-aged white man. It was the confidence of a middle-aged white man with Google at his fingertips, Right. And so we, we get to the counter and obviously we need coffee, but we're also hungry. We had, we had what was it going to be, four hours of driving ahead of us from Rome like that, yeah. to... Uh, Tuscany. Tuscany, yeah. And uh, I was trying to think of the name of the town. What was the name of the town? Luca. Bagna de Luca. That's it. Bagna de Luca. <laughs> Uh, which you could tell by my See, perfect native. pronunciation. <laughs> native. Oh, gosh. So and, native. And so, you know, so that's the four of us. And and we, you know, we're all vegetarian. And, and, and the only thing that was immediately available sandwich-wise was caprese sandwiches. Caprese. Caprese. And I didn't know how to say four. And I didn't think that it, there's no way it could be like what Spanish is where you say cuatro. It's got to be something else. So I just looked... <laughs> You know how how to say four in Italian, and and I 
I, I maybe I put in the wrong search or whatever, but I looked at this word. <laughs> I looked at this word, and it had this kind of like chevron over the O or something. And I said, okay, I'm going to say this word, but I need to say it in an Italian accent. And so I, <laughs> with my phone in hand, I say to the guy, I'm assuming his name is uh, Giuseppe. And I say to him, Giuseppe, I would like uh, Caprese's sandwich. And he says, quanto, or something like that. And I said, four. <laughs> and he gives me this confused look, and he turns to the guy making sandwiches in the back, and he says, quattro caprese. <laughs> Four. But but the the way you're pronouncing this this whiskey name, like you've you've just adopted you know this this rogue accent again, and you just just own it, just say it. Colere, colere, colere. caprese. Oh gosh, you were, and there was literally a second and a half where you thought you were king of the world, king of the world. I still feel came. like I'm king of the world. <laughs> oh, to have the confidence of a middle-aged white man. <laughs> so let, let me say what I was going to say. When I when I poured the calare, calare, and I'm nosing it, and, and just again thinking about how, how Westland will be telling their story, right? This is a new approach to the Westland story. All of that aside, like them telling their story, Every time I put my nose into a Westland glass, it reminds me that there's l- there, there are few distilleries I am this excited about. Mm, that's, a nice, that's a nice point. Right? Yeah, I like that a lot. Their approach to whiskey making, their uh, intention to, to make it stand apart from the rest... There's always something new and and different. And again, so obviously it's an American whiskey. And I say this every time we talk about Westland, but I feel as if it's beyond an American whiskey. It's it's in that it's in that sandbox, that silo of world whiskey. And when it comes to the silo of world whiskeys. There are a few distilleries that excite me more than Westland. I just love what they do and how they do it and their intention behind it. Yeah, I was intrigued going into this sample because you've got me saying to Matt, I really love the Westland Signature 5 Malt Mash Bill. Yeah. I love the inclusion of that chocolate malt. I love the presence of the oak. And you've got Matt saying, okay, we didn't do any of those things in this release. <laughs> it's, it's a six-row winter barley called Alba, grown in the Skagit Valley. Yeah. It's in refill, uh, some of our refill barrels, yeah, yeah. where we have matured Westland in them. Um, I do have the website open, and, and I love, again, the transparency, right? Cast types. Second fill ISC Cooper's Reserve. That makes up 62% of this. 
and first fill ex bourbon makes up 38% of this. So so you so you do have that first fill component. Yeah. Again, familiar with out of Scotland. But then also these Westland second fill casks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. coming around again. And you had made this point before we'd um, started recording here is even though it's a different grain bill and even though the cast types and the maturation are slightly different, there's still Westland at the heart of this. And for you, it was the yeast. Yeah. The yeast is still consistent in here for you. 100%. And and this is why I think yeast is such an important part of the conversation that that thankfully here in the U.S. we've been talking about yeast for years. Distilleries have proprietary yeast, proprietary yeast strains, etc. The Scots are now starting to talk about different yeast. We know that Kilhoman are playing around and some other distilleries are playing around with yeast. Dr. Bill Lumsden talked about playing around with wild yeast and so on. And yeah, you know, if, if, if Westland is known for their five grain mash bill and is known for, I wouldn't necessarily say they're known for specific cask types, it, at least in my head, but, but I think that five grain mash bill really stands out as saying, hey guys, this is what Westland is about. Just like Pendarin using a Faraday still says, hey guys, this is what Pendarin is about. When you take away the five grain mash bill, what are you left with if you don't have a consistency of casks? You've got the yeast. And nosing it, I don't get that immediately. I, I'll, I'll, I'll go over my tasting notes in a second, but it's upon tasting it. When you, when you get the liquid across your tongue, that's when mm-hmm. you say, all right, there's that Westland fruitiness that that banana note is still there, and it gets back to the Jean Claude Van Damme yeast strain. When I first nosed it, and then tasted it, and yeah, that brightness, that juicy fruit gum right across the palate, mm. so so luxurious. But also, in turning in the glass, there's really good oils in mm. there, mm-hmm. wonderful texture on the mouth. But it also, it made me think of the Washington malt that was a component. And I I think it was the Washington malt in the wild turkey barrel for the maturation Mm -hmm. that was a component of the Whiskey Jubilee Westland that we did. Correct. And then after we did the deconstructed tasting before one of the, the New York Jubilee, we, you know, we heard from Bino, we heard from Matt Luring, we heard from Michael Nolan, other nation members, if you bottled this Washington malt, we would buy it. Mm-hmm. And we bottled the remains of the cast. We didn't have a lot. I think we were under 150, 140 it was bottles at that time. 103 bottles, I think. Really? I'm near Memory. positive it was 103. Memories. Anyway. And so and so we, we bottled the remainder of it, but it was known for being so bright. I often talked about it as liquid sunshine in the glass. Mm. And the brightness that I get from the cholera is outstanding absolutely outstanding so give me some notes let's let's go let's go on the nose here and we don't we don't normally do this and and I want to be very clear here we're we're not this is not an infomercial for 
Kalare or anything. It's, we've got the samples. I just want to know what you've got going on here. There's something tropical fruit. Is it, is it a mango? Is it a pineapple? But it's, it's bright and rich and warm and syrupy. It's Meyer lemons. It's honeydew. Mm. There's a little bit of like persimmon tartness going on in the background there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just sniffed the mic. I pulled my glass away from my nose and then I sniffed the mic, realized, wait a second, that's not what do you get on the what do you get on the mic? What do you get on the nose of the mic there? Yeah. It's very mm. Mikey. Mm. Very Mikey. Mm. Unmistakable. Yeah. Hint of foam. Yeah. A hint a hint of foam. A hint of uh, Oh, it's funny. You talk about leading the witness. <laughs> I talk about foam and then I stick my nose back into this glass. I get foam bananas. Oh, yeah. I know we've talked about foam bananas yes, on, on some Scotch single malts. Yep. And this was the other thing that I wanted to mention. Now, this is this barley is a six-row Alba, I think you mm-hmm. said it was called. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of what this whiskey reminded me of, and it reminded me of this 2006 beer barley Brooklady bottling that I have. And it was, hmm. you know, uh, Isla, Isla barley from the... Kinnagary Farm. And beer barley is also a six-row barley, isn't it? That, that's the type of question that would need some research. <laughs> we can edit. <laughs> beer barley, six-row. Let's see if that gets a result. Beer barley is a six-row land race crop cultivated across Orkney by land race maintainers in small sections of land on crofts. There you go. Well done, Joshua. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, leave all of that in. Uh, yes, I, we can we can discover that in real time. <laughs> so isn't that interesting that this Alba beer barley, not I shouldn't call it beer barley, but this Alba six-row barley has, in my opinion, similar fruity, bright, citrusy notes that this Brooklady beer barley has. So... I think in a way that helps to prove what the folks at Westland are looking for. Does barley play a part in that, in that final flavor in that final (laughs) product? And I don't think it's a stretch to say, yeah, I think it, I think it could. (laughs) Yeah. You you think so? I'm going to, I've got the bottle here. I'm going to pop that open and just smell from the bottle. Yeah, bright, lemony, a bit, a bit saltier. There's a bit of a salty component in here. Okay. And <laughs> Brocolati always has that subtle lactic acid, you know, that, that kind of milky thing going on um, that, that makes it Brocolati, but, but that bright citrusy... Um, you know, you can't even avoid it if you tried kind of note is here as well as in this Kalare. Yeah, I'm, I'm with the internet open here. I'm, I'm going back over the, the tasting notes from Westland. And just on the nose, I won't go into the palate just yet, but on the nose, roasted pineapples co-mingle with a floral character. And then this is straight out the, the Joshua Hatton toolbox. Oh, yeah. 
with life cereal. And it doesn't stop there. Grape soda. Like, you and your cereal notes, you and your grape soda notes. Like, I think of you when I see those two things <laughs> happening. Um, it then goes on to say cookie dough and roasted almond notes. Interesting. Yeah, roasted almond isn't normally something I, I think of. Yeah, I'm not getting that. For me, it's on those fresh, juicy, fruity notes. And across the palate, mm-hmm. on my third sip, across the palate, and I know you haven't had this, but I talked about this in our episode with Arc Torin of Fidencio, where I got to taste pulque down in Oaxaca, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that fermented agave drink. And it's it has that agave juicy sweetness coming through across the palate. Yep, I will say though I have had uh, creme creme de mezcal, which has, to my understanding, pulque with the mezcal. Oh, interesting! And, and brings it down. Yeah, hmm. yeah, really, really good. And it's funny because it does remind me of the mezcal that we bottled uh, in collaboration with Arik. There you go. It's got this kind of rich buttery kind of quality to it. <sighs> So before I finish my pour over here, palate notes. So <laughs> I'm perilously close to the end of this pour. <laughs> so again, it's I got pulque on the on the palate. Let me let me go back in. Let me before I even talk about notes. The texture is so good, right? Mm-hmm. It just rolls on your tongue. It looks like you got some notes. Go ahead. Well, for me, it's that Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. You know, really... It's really sweet, but not cloyingly so, Mm. right? It's more like that exuberance of putting a fresh stick of juicy fruit Hmm. into your mouth. Wow, okay. But then the wood starts to appear towards the back of the palate, but it's not that usual big framing wood from Westland. Mm -hmm. It's much more the soft pepper, like that ground grey pepper that I sometimes Uh, talk about in our own tasting notes for for Single Cast Nation. It's just, it's a quiet counterpoint as, as it quietly dissipates. Oh, two notes hit me simultaneously. Lemon pound cake and mm, unlit mm-hmm, cigars, mm-hmm. right? That fresh, mm. that fresh cigar wrapper thing going on, and that fresh cigar wrapper, that unlit version of it, mm. is very close to my ground gray pepper. Ah, okay. Where there it's an it's an echo in the background, and yeah. I hear you a hundred percent on that note. I think the lemon pound cake speaks to, of course, the citrus, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. that continues to run through this. But also the butteriness. The butteriness. The, yep. the weight, yeah. the texture. Yep. Uh, West themselves say the pineapple headlines a fruity palate with mm. original wheat thins, black pepper, and fig bar, uh, with gingerbread cake driven by the malt. That's interesting. For me, and I don't tend to get the gingerbread cake in this one, but gingerbread notes tend to come from the wood. Uh, rather than the malt, but I assume they've they've tasted the malt. Yeah, as is. Well, I mean, right? Uh, tasting notes are are 
incredibly subjective. And what did you have for breakfast? What did I have for breakfast? That's going to affect our tasting notes. I, I, I'm, I'm a bit confused by the fig bar note. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on the fig there. I would focus on the 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 breading, the cookie breading on the outside yeah. rather than the fig. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah. No, it's kind of like a like a fig Newton, right? Mm. Where do you really think about the figs when you're eating a fig Newton? Or are you really just thinking about no. the outside coating? Right, and especially if you're eating a fig Newton properly, you go along the edges and you oh. and you bite. You bite the the cookie coating on either side, so then you have four sides of of um, exposed fig, and then you eat that. That's how you do it. My kids don't get beaten for a lot of things. That's one of the things they get beaten for. For doing the right thing? Yeah. <laughs> doing, the, doing the right thing, he says. Jesus, I'm, I'm scared to... I'm scared what you'll do to them when you watch them eat Oreo cookies. Uh, that's that's the other place the beatings. I, I have to say this just very quick aside. My uh, my fourteen year old picked up some triple stuffed Oreos no, at the weekend. No one does that. No one does that. Right? You don't. Right? People don't do double stuff. If you do triple stuff, you're a broken person. Horrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrific. The ratio's off. It's oh my god. Oh, Oreos, sorry. Sorry for bringing that Oreos up. Oreos are was, great oh. for a reason. The ratio. Of single stuff to two chocolate cookies, it's perfect. See, to be honest, it's still too much. Single is too much for me. It's too sweet. It's, I, need, I need more cookie to offset just how... You want to talk about cloyingly sweet and Oreo is? Oof, that's tough. <laughs> triple. I really thought I was going to be sick after I had the triple. Uh, just to close out on the color here, we've got total number of bottles is just under 3,000. Uh, cast maturation, 49 months, and that's for the batch. So a, a minimum of 49 months for the batch. And then bottled at 50% alcohol, which makes us happy. See, I feel uh, like- If you're trying to do the math there, it's four years and one month. Thank you. I feel like I'm trying to deci- decipher what proof means. <laughs> yeah. Four times 12, remainder one. How old are your kids, Jason? 14 and 11. Okay, so 11. So that's like- a hundred and twenty-four months old. Is that right? Nope. Yes, it is. It's ten times twelve plus twelve. Yeah. Is not one hundred and twenty-four. I know. <laughs> do you know? Do you? Let's get back to what you do know. We we were lucky to get another sample from Westland that coincided beautifully with the conversation we'd had with Matt mm-hmm. and our assumption is it's okay to taste this in the podcast and we're certainly going to press ahead and taste it in the podcast and see if Westland asks us not to taste it in the podcast he's 132 months old by the way I just did the math on my calculator <laughs> wow <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I, got, I got nothing I, I'm really excited to be to be tasting this. So, so as Matt mentioned in the podcast, and it's funny that he that you know we're getting this news just a few episodes after I suggested their you know their current American single malt is a must have on your shelves. They're doing and away with it. 
That's exactly why I wanted to taste this yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. Because, yeah, you making that comment, us catching up with Matt and finding out that the thing that you recommended in the top 10 is going away. Mm-hmm. And I thought you would be the person to taste this with to see if this gets the hat and seal of approval. So let's let's think about really quickly what their old lineup was. There were three bottlings in their core range, American Single Malt, then the Sherry Wood, and then the Peated. And this new version of American Single Malt has the you know, five malt blend plus a bit of Sherry Wood plus a bit of Peated. So it's almost as if they took those three bottlings and made this, you know, this hybrid whiskey to show all aspects of what Westland could do. And so let's see what it's like on the nose. Huh. The peat is noticeable, and the peat marries a bit with that with the sweet sherry note on it. Del- it's all delicate though. There's I'd nothing. Agree with that. I don't think there's anything like jumping out at you uh, trying to take there's nothing leading the race as i should say no but something has caught my attention right off the bat (laughs) and wonderful oils in the the glass glass. Yeah. yeah absolutely tremendous those are heavy oils gosh are you getting the, a, the the label that we've yeah. got on the samples here is just kind of a a handwritten label. Oh, there! Look at that. I've I've turned it around and I've got the answer to my question. Forty six percent alcohol. Yeah. Yep. Yep. As that that was expected. I think you mentioned it would be forty six percent, if not on I, the recording, just, just in passing. I'm just surprised to see such heavy oils on forty six percent. I I actually wondered if they'd sent us a cask strength batch here oh interesting not not that the nose suggests cask strength in any way shape or form but those oils just like like natural oils straight from the cask are you getting much of the of the five malt in here are you getting that that chocolate coming through like a little bit but i think your point from a moment ago stands up where as you explore it with your nose you're getting a little bit of the sherry sweetness yeah you're getting a little bit of the peat smoke i'm definitely getting a little bit of chocolate but i'm also almost getting a a chocolate cherry happening on Mm. the nose here like the uh the chocolate cherries you get at the at the gas stations, you pay the, the 25 cents. It's right at the counter. You talking that kind of chocolate chair? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not buy one at every gas station you, you frequent? Hmm. I don't, know. <laughs> there you go. Now that you've said it, though, I can't unsmell that. Right. But, but, I, but I think the general point is the balance of the nose. Yeah. It's really, really well balanced and, and interesting, right? This is this is Westland now putting a new foot forward, and it's saying, "Yes, we got a bit of peat in us. Yes, we got a bit of sherry in us. Yes, we got some roasted malt there for you." It's this is kind of like the um, like the jack of all trades kind of whiskey here, like the all rounder, right? Remember mm-hmm. Highland Park Twelve. 
that was always the all-rounder. If you wanted a bit of smoke, a bit of sweet, a bit of malt, a bit of salt, right? Mm. I had to take my first sip of this while you were chatting away there. Mm. Oh, boy. The peat's more present on the palate. And it's almost, I'm not used to this with Westland, but it's almost a medicinal style peat on the palate. Are you getting the same thing? I am. It, it's not. It's not that f- like fragrant smoke on the palate. It, it is that medicinal. Exactly. Yeah. It's got the hospital beds. It's got the fresh bandages. Mm. But it's to the back of the palate. It's not to the front. Mm. The front has got a very delicate sweetness happening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. For me, I, I agree with you. The, the sweetness is up front. That, that peatiness, though, that slightly medicinal peatiness is right mid-palate for me. And the chocolate starts to kick in. After you swallow, you get that finish coming through, that, that chocolate depth. There's a depth there. There's a richness there or a heaviness there that I think may be amplified by that lingering peat. Does this seem? I wouldn't mind. Okay. Go ahead. I wouldn't mind a bit more wood to transition from mid palate to finish. What do you? What, what do you think's lacking there? Other than wood, like what? What is? What? What, what do you think more wood would be doing? Just a a bit more framing okay. of the sweetness into the peat, then into some heavier wood then into the finish because I'm getting a little bit of the pepper that we talked about mm-hmm. previously where there is that pepper to the back of the palate transitioning into the finish yeah yeah I I see what you're saying however okay let, let me let me dig a little deeper let me let me try to clarify my question when you say you're looking for that wood what type mm-hmm. of wood would you want? Are you looking for more influence from an ex-bourbon, from an ex-sherry cask, or maybe from a new charred oak? The new charred oak. Right. And right. see, <laughs> I am glad that's not there. Mm. I really, because? because I really want Westland to do all they can to show that they are not a bourbon that they're not awry mm. and that new charred mm. oak note most not most but many bourbons when you taste them the notes are very oak driven right sure. and and and, sure. and so i want westland to show that point of difference mm. i like that mm. they're staying separate so let me counter you with this then all right Westland as a world single malt, to my mind, not enough Scottish single malts are leading with new charred oak. Westland could be in a position to have a world single malt. And I'm not saying have as much as bourbon has, but just put it in the back there. Just allow it to be a transitional item. You've, You've got so many things going on here. And there's so much balance mm. 
that I think the one additional thing from my palette that would add to the balance would be a little bit more of the oak. All right. And it and it doesn't need to be either bourbon or sherry, but it needs to be oak. That, that's what I would like. Right. And here's, the, here's one of the beautiful things about a new cask is, you know, they, and you mentioned them before when we were talking about colare. Four, uh, you know, Four. that they're using ISC casks, independent stave company casks. You know, if it, I, I imagine if they wanted to, they wanted a bit more oak like you're suggesting. However, at the same time, wanting to not come across as a, as a bourbon with those massive oak notes, you could do a toast with a very light char or something like that. They could just add just that little extra layer that I think you're looking for. Um, I, I don't think it's missing anything personally. And the more I sip it, I, I like their approach. I will miss that old American single malt. But I like this, I like this approach of them presenting an all-rounder, which I think was such uh, a big key to Highland Park's success that so many people could come to it for many different reasons, even if you're okay with a little bit of smoke, if you're okay with a little bit of sherry, right? This seems to be taking that approach, and and I like it. Well, and I think if you're if you're Westland, if you're Remy, and you're thinking, okay, what's our entry OB product? Could a consumer who understands that product or who has been introduced to that product, could they jump from there? and explore our three annual releases and better understand the distillery? I think the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as we said on the nose here, hey, we do peat here. There's also an annual peat release. We do, you know, single malt barley here. Um, We've also got one of those in an annual release. Yeah. Um, And then we also do something with, what's the other one? But they do, they're doing a peated one. They're doing the they're doing annual Gariana. grain. And Gariana, right? The oak, yeah. Yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and we've got one that's the Oregon oak. And so, yeah, I, I think this sets the table beautifully for the three jumping off points. And then, as we said way back in the beginning, if you can get the distillery, if you know somebody in the state of Washington, mm. really play around with those single cask picks. Or, you know, if you know an independent bottler who's got a relationship with Weston. (laughs) Do you feel as if with this new American single malt and and Westland eliminating their old American single malt, replacing it with this, that seems to be, again, that combination of the three old bottlings, right? American single malt, sherry, and then peated. Do you feel as if... They've lost their calling card or, and people will perceive it that way, or do you believe that this is an enhancement of their calling card? And, and let, me, let me give you some examples. In the mid-90s, Glenn Geary went from a peated malt to an unpeated malt. A, d- a distillery changing the house style is not unheard of. In the mid-90s, uh, Glenn Morangie did the same thing, right? They had Dr. Jim Swan help with, with you know, reworking their spirit, and they started working with finishes and, and things like that. And, 
And so my, my point is distilleries have done this. And so do you, do you see this as them doing something similar to what Glenn Geary and, and Glenn Morangy did? And are, are you just as a drinker pleased with this new calling card? I think simply put, we're witnessing the evolution of a distillery. Hmm. And one of the things that, that has always excited me about Westland, the same thing that excited me about Kilhoman, is that we could be there for the journey. <laughs> and as you talk about yeah. the changes made at Glengarry and those made at Glenmorangie, and you could throw in the changes made at, at Ardmore and moving yeah. away from, from coal-fired stills there, yeah. Yeah. you know, in, in the very early 2000s. We, we only got a portion of the distillery before that in our own personal histories. Yeah. Here we are every step of the way with Westland. And, and it's funny because, you know, Matt doesn't often talk about it just because it's so far in the past now, but but they started out with, a, you know, what, what do you call in America, right? A, a, a lock-up in an industrial estate, right? A sliding <laughs> shutter door, right? Yeah, it's a little, little rent-a-space kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And, and they Self-storage. And, and I almost... Right, I almost feel bad that we missed out on those early days, even though when we first met Matt uh, mm-hmm. and Westland and went out to, to Hoquam where they were maturing spirit, we got to taste the early experiments, mm-hmm. right? And so here we are now in 2021. This is the foot that Westland is putting forward to represent them. And I, I think it is a, a, a terrific foot. And I think... It's one worth getting to know. And and then it brings me back to my point earlier, which is as a consumer, you can go from American single malt into three annual releases Mm. and further explore. And it's it's interesting because given the way you phrased your question, I almost think the three annual expressions become the calling card. That's oh. the way in which Westland says, this is who we are. But you got to get to know them through the American single malt mm. first. Maybe. Maybe. I don't see it that way. <laughs> but Can you think of Westland without thinking of Gary Anna Oak? I no you, that that's a very good point that it, that is a very good point you you cannot think of Westland without thinking of Garyana Oak however these annual special releases are at a much higher price point and for those people again you know when when you and I talk and and when our listeners listen to our podcast we're all in a somewhat similar boat of we're a bit more in the know than your average bear. And hmm. so we know Garyana. Our listeners know Garyana. And if they didn't know Garyana until today, now you know. Westland has a release called Garyana where they're using this special Garyana oak that's only available in the Pacific Northwest. And it's a very different style of whiskey. Anyway, my point is, for those that, that don't really know Westland, this new American single malt, which is at a slightly lower price point than the old one, which that that's kind of good. I think that's going to be your calling card because it's the lowest barrier to entry to the brand. If 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 you don't know anything about Westland, and you're at a shop and you see one bottle for a 
I'm just going to pull a number out of this guy, 150 bucks. Um, and I think the Calare is, is more on their website, but that's because there's Washington state taxes involved there and all that. Uh, anyway, if you see a special edition for 150 and then you see their standard for 65 or 60, whatever the price is, you'd say, let me go for that one first. I've heard about that, right? So that, I think price point is going to dictate their calling card. I think this is the so not for the card. first time. I, for, not for the first time. You and I are using words differently. So for me, calling card sounds more like distillery DNA, right? Like, how do you know who we are? And I, I feel like the American single malt is the beginning of a relationship. Mm-hmm. This is the part of the relationship where you don't yet fart in one another's company. Right. Ah, this is Where first base. That's that's what it is. This first base. Right. This this is hello. How are you? Good to meet you. Hmm. You've got some qualities that I find intriguing. Mm. Let me get to know you better. Mm-hmm. And then you say, "Holy shit! You've got Gary Anna Oak. I think I might love you. <laughs> oh, you've got you know Skagit Valley grown grain in refill Westland barrels." I think I might have to marry you, right? I, I think it's the growing relationship. That, oh, and then you pull out the peat. Well, gosh, yes, okay. this is going to be a long, fruitful marriage. But for you, calling card seems to be the intro. The, yes, yes. Hello, how's that's, your father? Yes, 100%. For me, that's calling card. That's This is, this is would you swipe right? I have literally no idea if right is the good one or the bad one, but it's intended to be the good one. If I'm using that incorrectly, I apologize. Yeah, swipe or no swiping, swipe or no swiping, swipe or no swiping. Um, yeah, I to me, a calling card is, you know, you're, you're the vacuum salesman. You come to a door and you're in the 50s and you say, hey, you know, was your husband around? I want to sell you a vacuum cleaner because this is what they did in the 50s. And no, he's not around. Can you come back and you say, here you go. Here's my calling card. So they can call you back, right? That's, hey. I love, I love the fact I'm, I'm trying to make it a 21st century thing with the, the Tinders. And, uh, and you're in 1950s vacuum sellers. <laughs> you do have an onion on your belt. There is no doubt about it. Hey there, Mrs. Is your husband around? I got a vacuum to sell. It's really good. It sucks up things and it goes right in the bag. See, for me, I'm thinking more calling card like the Joker at the end of the first Christopher Nolan movie where you see the Joker's calling card and you think, oof, this is about to get real, right? Hmm. There's, there's something to unpack here. That's, that's what I thought you were meaning by calling card earlier. So, and I like what you just said. I like a lot what you just said, because I think what you just said talks about this whiskey that we have in our glass now. There is a lot to unpack here. It gets back to that all-rounder. That's why I call this a calling card. There's, you can explore this and, and discover new flavors. I, the more you go back to it, the more I sip, the more that's going on. But it's that, it's that exploration that you and I are differing on. Whereas you're seeing exploration within this dram and I'm seeing ex- exploration of the distillery. Yes. Because I, because I like what this dram has brought to my door, but I want to know more. I want to go and explore further. 
What's our favorite GIF? DNA. Uh, why not both? Why not both? Why not both? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have spent a long, long, long time on these two samples, and it has mm. been a ton of fun. This is exactly what you and I would have been doing at the distillery with Matt, with Steve, uh, in person. Mm-hmm. And and we have any because of the, the conditions. So getting mm. to do it on the pod while thinking about the two of them and thinking about our next trip out to Seattle and all the various friends we have in Seattle who we haven't seen in a while. Yeah. It's been nice. It's been really nice living in that space for a bit. And that's Beautiful. why we've, we've hung out here for a while. So that I think, I think what I think listeners want to know if this is the American single malt that's replacing the one that was in your top 10 list is it still an endorsement here? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I I really like. There, I'll be very honest. I'm going to miss that old representation of American single malt, and I'm going to have to go out and, and buy a few bottles so I don't run out because I will miss it. Is this the perfect replacement? I would say, no, it's not a perfect replacement. And it's not because it's a bad whiskey. I think it's a fantastic whiskey. But I, I think it's showing you so much in one little dram. And, and one of the things that I enjoyed about the, the American single malt, it, it, was, it was just a little easier than this. You got to use your brain here a bit more. And I'm not deducting points. I don't look at it that way. It's just two different animals. And that's what I was going to throw in here is it's not intended to be a replacement for American oak. Yeah, It's yeah, a replacement yeah. for the line. And the line is American oak and sherry wood and peated. And is it a replacement for the line? Yes. Is it successful in that regard? Yes. Is it the American oak that you love and cherish? No. No, but... I think that's a... Oh, no but. But what this whiskey allows me to do is something I wasn't able to do previously with any standard Westland bottling. If you wanted to tell the Westland story, you had to do it across three bottlings. Now you've got the one. The story becomes a bit simpler to tell because it's all locked within that one dram. That's kind of cool. And so thinking about bringing people over because now we're all getting vaxxed and we're all <laughs> starting to live in a new world. <laughs> I'm able to pour this and say, check check out Wes and look at what they're doing now. And you can really spend your time focusing on that singular dram and where that takes you across an hour or two of conversation. Well, and I know the, the first thing I'm going to do when this is officially released is I'm going to pour it next to the American Oak. And I'm going to do that side-by-side comparison to see yeah, where yeah. the American oak lives yes, yes, in yes, this yes. new expression. Yep, yep, 100%. 100. There we go. Thanks to our friends at Westland for sponsoring this segment of the podcast. <laughs> they did. The, for the simple price of two sample bottles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Gosh, we, we're cheap. Yes. We're yeah, so cheap. And easy. Do we have do we have any news to share? I know we've got we've got a, an email to share with people, but have a bit of news to share? 
We do have an email. I, yeah, I would love to cycle back on some news. So let's let's make it official. Let's wake up the paper boy. In the early to middle portion of May, we yes. announced the lottery for the two wild turkey casks. Mm-hmm. We had a tremendous response, as always. Far, 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 far more people sign up for the chance of winning than can possibly ever win. But hopefully it's fun to feel like you're in the running for some period of time. The newsy segment of this, the newsworthy part of this, is that in the past, when we've run the lottery, we've then emailed winners and they've had 24 hours to purchase a bottle. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has. And then we move on to another round of winners. And, you know, they don't quite get a guarantee, but they have a chance if they move fast enough. And if not everybody moves on that, we have another round. Mm -hmm. For the first time ever, everybody jumped on their lottery winnings. It was absolutely remarkable to see. And those who have hung around with us for a few years and seen a few of these lotteries have had a chance to see multiple announcements. And this time was kind of one and done. And I'm curious to see, well, if the history of the nation is anything to go by, this is the new normal. You win, you purchase, there's no future rounds. I'll tell you, from from a logistics standpoint, it's made our lives a bit easier. 100%, yep. <laughs> and and I, I, one of the things that makes me happy about this, even though I'm I'm sad for for those that have been waiting for a second round and a third round. I'm excited from a logistical standpoint that, you know, I know some people missed out because maybe an email went into their spam or maybe they were traveling. Think about this. This lottery happened during a time when no one's traveling. <laughs> so more people mm-hmm. had access, mm-hmm. consistent access to their emails. Uh, so I, whatever logistically made this work out so that it was a one and done rather than waves two and three, I'm happy for that. And is this a new normal? Perhaps. Uh, so moving forward, if you you enter a lottery and you get an email that says you won, just do what you did for those winners. Well, and the, the consistent message we've sent out to people coming into the info account or or on Facebook, or on the social medias, is there will be more Single Cast Nation Wild Turkey lotteries. And so you yes. might not have won this time. You know, know that, you know, they, boy, are they popular. We see such spikes in membership in the run-up to these. Like, there's such enthusiasm around these. But keep your eyes open. We'll mm-hmm. continue to announce it on the podcast. We're trying to get back down to Kentucky now that vaccinations are in place, now that travel is starting to open up again, we're trying to get back down to Kentucky to make more selections. 100%. We know the demand is there. Yep. So, so that, that's been really exciting on the Wild Turkey. I do want to double back. We announced on the podcast two Westlands, and we, we briefly described the two Westlands. 
And if this is a an industry podcast where we are transparent and we do give our listeners regular peaks behind the curtain, there is a less than savory peak behind the curtain that I want to give right now as an update that is an ongoing situation. And mm-hmm. so I'm not saying, you know, the update I'm about to give is not an end of proceedings. <laughs> And we hope it's not the end of proceedings. Sure as fuck better not be. Sorry, go on, Jason, please continue. For the first time in our 10-year history, whiskey has gone missing. And in transporting Westland from Seattle to our bottling hall in Kentucky, it's gone missing. Yep. And it didn't get delivered on the date it was supposed to. It's somewhere out there. We're now four or five We're weeks. five weeks into that shipment being completely lost. Two casks of Westland somewhere. Not at our bottling hall. <laughs> Not in bottle. Somewhere. Not at the distillery. Not at the distillery. So, yeah. So, it's in the interest of... <laughs> transparency you know our listeners are smart enough savvy enough and they they remember things when we don't the fact that we mentioned the westlands normally we try not to mention things until they're en route we try not to mention things until there's a bottling date a delivery date we had those things mm-hmm. um and now what we don't have is the whiskey so we will keep you updated, dear listener. Know that we have no idea what this situation looks like or how it resolves itself or what happens next. We're speaking to the shipping company. We're trying to get answers. <laughs> We're spinning our wheels here. Yeah, we're speaking But you to might them. not hear us mention Westland for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> or at least our casks, the two seven-year-olds <laughs> that we had mentioned previously. Yeah. It's, it's, it's infuriating. I, I wake up every day looking at my email. Do we have good news? No, we have no news. Okay, I will email them again. What's going on? How can we escalate this? Why isn't this your entire company's number one priority? I understand <laughs> yes, you're a nationwide is... shipping company, but you know, this one pallet Ooh. of two drums <laughs> is the most important thing you have in your inventory, you MRFers. gosh it's such a weird situation to be in for the very first time in 10 years and one of the things we keep saying and we certainly say on the podcast is we keep experiencing the wildest things for the very first time global pandemic never experienced that before what does that look like (laughs) okay oh loss of business travel well i haven't experienced that before okay can't go to Scotland, can't go to Seattle, can't go anyway. Okay, what does that look like? Conducting interviews remotely and having the interviewee mm-hmm. saving files to their local uh, device and then sending it to us. Never done that before. Oh, two lost casks. Okay, never done that before. <laughs> I'm tired of these firsts. I want some new, better firsts, Joshua. Yeah, you know... All I have going in my head right now is 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 Madonna's like a virgin. 
where we felt like a virgin each and every time some new situation comes on our lap. I'm tired of feeling like a virgin. Royally fucked for the very first time. Hey, royally fucked for the very first time. I remember that lyric, but, you know, they might have played a different version on the radio in the UK. So there you go. There's the Westland. There's no tidy bow here. That's yeah. just an ongoing situation. And, and in the interest of keeping listeners up to speed, there you go. Do with that what you will. I'll close out with some good news. I like good news. US retail release number seven has been bottled, has been labelled, has been packaged. We're just trying our damnedest to get it into the country, which is not easy at this time. It's not easy at this time. So that's the good news. The obstacle <laughs> in our way is that there is a global Here comes shipping a container. Yeah, this for is the very first time again. <laughs> for the very first time. Like a surgeon. Um yeah, that we're in the midst of a global shipping container shortage. So in previous years, if we wanted to ship whiskey from Scotland to the U.S. and put it on a boat, it would take about six weeks to get here. Spend a week or two at the port, but then it would get into our warehouse. You're looking at now about a minimum of four weeks, sorry, a minimum of four months to get to the port. And let's say we wanted to avoid shipping by boat. Let's, let's, let's get it over by air. Well, shipping by air is usually about a one-week lead time with a week at the port. And it would cost more than ocean freight, no doubt about it. But, you know, you could stomach that. Now air freight is around four weeks to port with another week at the port before it gets to our warehouse. And the cost is a good four times what it was previously. So we are in what I think the kids say, a pickle. While oh. racing against the merely suspended tariffs, <laughs> which may or may not come back uh, into effect in August. Tariffs. I missed those off my list of a moment ago. <sighs> tariffs between allies. Yeah, that's a thing. Would you, would you call this... A shit show? Like, would this be deemed a shit show? Yes. Okay. I would not hesitate for a nanosecond to call all of this a shit show. And what's kind of interesting about it, and I've I've done this myself, and, and I continue to do this myself as a consumer, I, I'm like, you know, where's the next whiskey coming from? Who's, mm. you know, have, have Smos done anything recently? Have, have Cadenheads put out anything to the US recently? Like, where's... Where's the whiskey? I, I could go out and buy some new whiskeys. There's this mm. new Colhoman coming with the PX maturation. I'm I'm reaching out. I've got friends yeah. reaching out to me. Hasn't like, hit is, where, is it hasn't coming? hit the warehouse yet. I reached out that. to you. Yeah. Right. How's that looking? Where's that at? And it's... On one end, I, I still want to be excited by new whiskeys and I still want to be eager to see new whiskeys. And on the other side, I know that right now this is a gigantic, I would even go beyond shit show to shit storm. Oh, I thought you were going to go to clusterfuck. I thought we were in, in the area of clusterfuck. 
Not there. Not there yet. Oh. When we can't get a container, when we can't get a shipping date, then we're going to have a clusterfuck. I, th- I think our two Westland drums should be categorized as a clusterfuck. See, we're still in, we're still in a holding pattern, though. Like it's right now, it's Schrodinger's Westlands. It is Schrodinger's Westlands, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. They're neither, they're neither over, nor being bottled. They are somewhere in between those two states, and we just don't know what state they're in. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. They might be in Kentucky, they might be in Illinois, they might be in California. I'll I'll tell you, if we find these casks and they get bottled, I think we have to put on a special secondary label that is just called Schrodinger's Casks. I I, I think we need to do that. You should write that down because we're both going to forget. And then when we don't do it, our listeners are going to remember and say, weren't you going to put a secondary label called Schrodinger's Casks and we'll be like that's a brilliant idea did we come up with that and they'll say it was in a podcast was well, it well we could we could tell them that there are labels we just don't know where they are they're Schrodinger's <laughs> labels <laughs> <laughs> my takeaway from the news segment is this <laughs> we are really happy with the whiskies that we have in the seventh US oh retail release oh my gosh yes and There's a 2003 Orkney coming for online that is collaboration with the Water of Life film. And I have been waxing lyrical to anybody who will listen about the Orkney. I'm in in love. I've got a contender for SCN Whiskey of 2021. Can I tell you my thought on that Orkney, the 17-year-old Orkney? Yes, but I'm also, once it's actually released, you and I are going to discuss it more on the podcast. Then I won't discuss it. Or should I? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to forget. Let's get it on wax. In the early 2000s, there there was a distillery on Orkney uh, called Highland Park. You may have heard of, you may have heard of them. Familiar, yep. We've actually mentioned them a few times in this podcast today. And in the early 2000s, they released a series of single casks in partnerships with various distributors around the world and bars like Delilah's, shops like Binnie's, and, you know, you name it. And and the, the ages of those whiskeys ranged from, like, 13 years up to 34, 35 years. And they were all remarkable. I would suggest that the more recent single cast releases from this distillery, for whatever reason, were not up to the legendary status of those old ones, for whatever reason, and and, and I don't know why. Um, But in tasting that 17-year-old, and you said yes to it before I tasted it, which is kind of a rare thing. You and I try to say yes to things together. And you said, holy crap, this, this is a yes. And then you sent me a sample, and it is of the quality of those legendary early 2000 releases. Like, the quality is remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. I can't believe we have... Yeah, I remember picking up a 19-year-old single cast from Beltramo's in Palo Alto, California. Ah, yeah. 
spectacular. Went back, bought another couple of bottles of yeah. it, shared it with my Palouse Whiskey Society. Yeah. Just, and it was, it was one of those like, if every Highland Park tasted like this, I would go bankrupt because I would buy every single one of them. I was almost happy that there was a bit of relief after those legendary releases where we could actually catch our breath and restock our bank accounts. Right, and it was around that time that Paul F. Pacult, 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 we're going we're gonna to destroy every name, but that's when he called Highland Park, you know, the, the, the best spirit in the world, right? It was that same time frame. Granted, he was talking about their 18-year-old, and, he, and, you know, that was his whiskey of the year, five years running. But back then, that Highland Park 18-year-old was of a similar quality of those single casks. Well, and, and I, only, I only called it Highland Park because it was life. It really was like, and the 18 <laughs> sealed the deal. And the 36-year-old was a, a double Highland Park. See what I did there? <laughs> hey, yeah, every, every Jewish listener know, knows. That this guy it. gets it. Okay, let's wrap up the news. I, I hope we ended on a positive note. That was, uh, that was a tricky news segment there, but let's... Um, yes, let me just... Let me just... Quite done. I just wanted to highlight one thing that you said sort of in passing, and I know you did it on purpose, but I want to highlight the fact that this Orkney is a collaborative bottling with the Water of Life film, which we're really happy with. Um, the, the, the movie makers, uh, I think, did a wonderful job. There's a bit more to this collaboration that, that we'll share at a future date. I don't want to show all of our cards, um, but just, you know, watch this space. We'll be sharing more details as we get closer to the release of that bottling. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. With the news segment firmly behind us, Jason, you had told me you had an email you wanted to bring to us, to our listeners. Who's it from and uh, what's going on there? Yeah, I'm sure you remember the name Mike Gore. Yeah, of course. Mr. Man in Chicago. Mm Mm-hmm. So he, he has an opening paragraph about bidding on bottles bidding. that were maybe that we maybe talk about from time to time. But okay. there's, there's, there's personal information in there, so I'm going to leave that part out. He says, I have a two-part question for you. You mentioned the many benefits to cask strength bottling before. Mm-hmm. One of the benefits being the ability to dilute it later to whatever you choose. Is there a benefit in a diluted bottled whiskey having increased time for the water and whiskey to meld slash integrate? That's the first question. I mm. will give you the floor on the first and then we'll return to the second well i would say there there's no doubt about it there are plenty of whiskeys out there be they single malts or blends or bourbons or what have you that are bottled at 43 percent, 46 percent, and they're perfectly good whiskeys some of them are perfectly excellent whiskeys did the water help that perhaps the problem is that ABV is always fixed, right? You don't know if that whiskey would have been better at 47.4% or 44.6% or what have you, right? They're always looking to fix an ABV because that's what the labels are approved for or this is the strength that they want to put their 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 
foot forward with and so on. And so I would say, yes, those are great whiskeys. Let me answer it further this way. When, and, and, and I learned about this through our friends at Pindaren, right? When they first looked to release their whiskeys early on, early doors, right? Mid-2000s or so. And they went to France because the French market is just a huge market for whiskey. And they said, here's, here's the whiskey that, that we want to release. And, you know, dear distributor, are you interested in this? And they say, first off, this is a fantastic whiskey. But what's the ABV on it? It's 46%. You're going to have to lower that for the French market. And they wanted them to go for, for 40%. Long story short, they ended up making the whiskeys, those whiskeys at 41%. But the point that I'm trying to get at is, for them, it wasn't merely a matter of, okay, the next batch just needs to be diluted more. They had to change the construction of that and, and select their casks in such a way to bottle it at a specific ABV. Mm-hmm. So I don't mm-hmm. think that it's necessarily a matter of, you know, let's put whiskey together and dilute it and, and put it out and you've got a great whiskey. I think you've got a bit more intention going on to ensure that at that ABV, it's going to taste the way they want it to taste. Which was exactly the conversation we had with James Saxon at the bar in Milroy's in London, mm. January of 2020, mm-hmm. saying, was that on the Spaniard maybe that we were discussing at that time? It was the Spaniard, time? yeah, because it was 43% you know, or something. Right, and, and me saying, oh, you know, a, a little bit more oomph there, I'd love to see what it would do, and him saying, well, when we brought the batch together, we tested it at numerous different strengths, mm-hmm. and 43 is where that batch shone through. Yeah. I think it makes your point for you. Yeah. Cool. The the other thing I would I would push back on with what you're saying there though is, you know, you, you know, you don't get to sample it at 47.4 or 46.3 or or what have you. Um I I think as you're adding water to a cast strength whiskey, none, none of us really know the strength we're taking it to. We just know we're taking it down from the point that it says on the label to and, a place that we prefer it where we right. prefer the, the experience right yeah. yep but we don't know if we took it down to 47 4 we don't know <laughs> yeah. if we took it down to 46 3 we just yeah. know we yeah. took it down you know and, and you know that that is kind of my point there is and we've said this so often we release bottles at a cask strength that we think is immediately drinkable straight from the bottle mm-hmm. but Everyone's palate is different, mm-hmm. and why not take it down? It's the getting it at forty three and knowing you can't go anywhere from there that's problematic, yeah. or forty six and knowing you can't really go anywhere from there that's problematic. For me, it's the fun of playing around with it. Yeah, and there's another way to do it as well, and and I I quite like Ollie's approach on this. So Ollie Chilton, our good friend, who who does the well, he does many things, but in this for this story, when he's focusing on single malts of Scotland, he doesn't just taste a cask and bottle it. He plays around with the ABV a little bit. So maybe it was naturally 40, you know, maybe it was naturally 54% alcohol, but he brings it down to 53.4 because it just drinks better to him 
with that little addition of water. Maybe it brings it down two points, right? So there are there are ways that you could still bottle really high strength whiskey, but bring it to a level that you, the bottler, are most happy with. And so then you get to do what what Mike Michael's talking about there, where you are diluting it ahead of time. But again, it's to the preference of that bottler, and not necessarily a fixed ABV that's on a late, you know, on a, a legacy label. But uh, but I think there's still this interesting question about the amount of time for for melding and integration. You know, as mm-hmm. you sit there of an evening just dropping in water, it's immediate, and things are happening in mm. in that immediate moment. If you're letting it sit and letting it marry and letting it meld and integrate, then, yeah, you know, I love my Glasgow blend at 43% alcohol, and it has sat with that water for a good while. It's come across an ocean. They've really gotten to know each other very well, and I think that provides a different experience than if I got Glasgow blend at 46% and added a couple of drops of water to bring it to 43 in the moment. I think it's exactly. a different experience. So so what you do is you get the bottling at 46%, you add the water, then wait three, six months or what have you, then go back to it. I think that's... Well, that we're not drinking the neck portion anymore, right? The neck portion goes down the sink, makes space for the water to no, dilute. No, no. Anybody's listening to this, there's no such thing <laughs> as pouring the contents of the neck of your bottle down the drain. That is ill-advised. Put in a little bottle. Secondly, What's that? <laughs> Secondly. But, the, right, we talked about this before. Put that in a little bottle. Drink your bottle. Once you get to the end of that bottle, then compare the two. See what you like more. <laughs> the neck pour has no chance. No chance. It's, it's the neck. Something reversing in your driveway. Yeah. FedEx yeah, coming the full length of your driveway. Yeah, the full girth as well. you're gonna have to repave that (laughs) secondly from mike gore Mm -hmm. do you believe whiskey ages or improves in the bottle with age i had always accepted this as a given that whiskey did not age once in glass but have since read a little of quote-unquote old bottle effect Perhaps it's a bit like the pitch drop experiment in that the change is so subtle and gradual that it is only perceptible after a great passage of time. He then includes a link to the vintagenews.com titled The Pitch Drop Experiment. And he asks, is it possible whiskey stored properly away from light and temperature fluctuations still changes over time. I think it's important to, when talking about the idea of whiskey changing in a bottle, so we're talking about it in the correct way, that it can do simply that, change a bit within the bottle. It's not an aging thing. You're not gaining more years because the years gained, like actual, noticeable year over year over year changes in flavors only happens in wood. But you will get, and therefore that's an aging process, when you have whiskey and you put it in a bottle, you may not understand 
the bottle effect on that whiskey, assuming it's a closed bottle, for a few decades, right? Especially if it's stored properly, you know, no light, no temperature fluctuation. It's not a volatile situation. Uh, if you, and obviously our listeners can't see it, right? But if you if you take a prized bottle and you put parafilm wax around the capsule and cork, you're going to ensure that uh, alcohol isn't evaporating out and oxygen isn't getting in. So there's a way to prolong the life of your of your whiskey in the bottle. Um, but you will you will see changes. I would I just I wouldn't call it age. Actually, Ryan Maloney was just mentioning this over the weekend at the World Whiskey Summit, where he was talking about the cork being such a terrible closure. And mm. you know, yes, we've known this, but we've fallen into the pattern of the best whiskies come with corks that we continue to live with corks on the top of our bottles. And, and Ryan, who, who's in retail up in Massachusetts, is busy saying the screw top is the best closure for your whiskey. And it's so interesting whiskey, yeah. watching you here taking out the parafilm, right? <laughs> We're adding another layer to the cork to try and stop, you know, evaporation. You know, you see old bottles drop down to the shoulders you know, getting rid of the uh, the neck pour in a traditional way. Yeah. And so, you you know, it it's interesting to me, and, and you and I just had this last Friday, we were dramming during our, our weekly meeting, and I pulled down the bottle that I talked about at the turn of the year being my, my 2020 non-SCN Whiskey of the Year, mm -hmm. which was the Whiskey Exchange Le Chig. Yeah. And, and as I returned to it, I've got maybe... What did I show you the other day? Maybe a third of a bottle left. About that. Yeah, about that. And you opened a fresh bottle. And I'm busy lamenting, this has really softened in the time it's been open. This yeah. isn't the same, you know, it, it doesn't deliver the same pungency that it did when it was first opened. And I think that if I'd left that cork with that wax, and I'll be able to do the experiment because I have acquired another couple i'll be able to cut the wax pop the cork pour a fresh one yeah. right next to this one that has been sitting on my shelf and i'll be able to see is it my memory am i remembering it as more pungent than it was right and that's that's my that's my comment on this always is that we often have no control Right, And if you're going to do a scientific experiment, you need to have a control. You need to be able to compare it to something. Mm -hmm. And all we're ever comparing it to are our own memories. And those are imprecise at best. And that's why I suggested the neck pour just go into a little mini. Right? And, th and then you can actually you have that control sample to... If the whiskey isn't doing what you thought it used to do, well, now you have a sample that you can compare it next to if you don't have that second bottle, right? If you don't have that backup bottle. What if I made a 750 mil sample of the one I'm opening? Uh, I think that would work. <laughs> I, cool. do wanna, I, I do want to... Asking for a friend. I want to make a slight point of clarification, though. So I agree with Ryan Maloney. The, 
like a, a, an actual cork for a whiskey bottle is a terrible closure. <laughs> but the reason why it's been used is that's the traditional thing you use for closing up bottles, right? And it, and it comes from wine. But in the wine world, the cork is the perfect closure, especially if you want to store that wine because you're going to store your wine on the side. The wine's going to hit the cork. The cork is going to get engorged a bit with that wine to make a perfect seal. And I love your face when I said engorged. And, you know, similar to a, a cask, right? What makes a wooden cask such a great vessel for a spirit or a fermented drink is that that liquid is getting soaked up by the wood, it's getting engorged, and you get a perfect seal. But with whiskey and cork, there's so much alcohol within whiskey that it doesn't do the cork any justice. It'll eat away at the cork, and then the cork gets into your whiskey, and it, it just ends up being a bad situation. This is why you never store your whiskey bottles on their side. And if you don't have liquid touching the cork, the cork could dry out, and that's where you get your evaporation of the alcohol. That's when the oxygen comes in, right? So it's this thing that you have to be cognizant of, and that's why we use the parafilm wax or a screw top <laughs> on some bottles. Like Westland use a screw top, right? Perfect little callback to why we're here in the first place. Oh, well, I'll, I'll say something nice. That was a lovely clarification. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you for Thank taking you. the time to clarify. You're very welcome. And then for my own callback, Mike's email came in the middle of April and he signs off by saying the prospect of new wild turkey from you has me very much looking forward to entering your next lottery. Lovely, Chubbly. I, I, I don't know who's won what because I don't look at those things. Hopefully he won. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> I take care of the logistics side of it. I didn't pay attention to his name, so sorry about that, Mike. Good. I hope it worked. There you go. There's how fair we are. A lovely email didn't affect the lottery. Lottery is the lottery is the lottery. Yep, 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 yep. All right, Jason, I, I don't think we've... Get, oh, well, you know what? We don't have anything left, but I really loved Mike's email. We actually got an email from James Saxon, too, that I want to read in our in our next podcast, potentially. I have to reread it to make sure that it's for the podcast and not specifically for us. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny but, you say that because I also, in the next episode, want us to revisit some folk who wrote in about their own selections for the top 10. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay, so that, that'll be a nice segment for the next episode. For anybody else who wants to reach out to us, you could do so. Questions at OneNationUnderWhiskey.com. Whiskey, of course, is always spelled without the E, never, ever, ever with the E with us. Uh, you could always tweet at us, at OneNationWhiskey. You could Instagram us, uh, like Colin Mares did, by the way, and I'll, I'll touch on that maybe in a future episode. We've been in conversation with him. He reached out to us on Instagram. We're at OneNationUnderWhiskey. And then finally, you can always check out our Facebook page or our Facebook group. Just go into the Facebook search bar, One Nation Under Whiskey. Um, Just very yeah. quickly, if I may, oh, here, at the, here at the very end, mm -hmm. the feedback from that top 10 list has been remarkable. And it's, it's not the type of thing that you or I took on lightly. 
I know it's very clickbaity. I know it's very whatever podcast baity is, right? Mm -hmm. To say, oh, do we have some information for you? Do delve in. You won't believe what we have to say. (laughs) Right. You won't believe what number one is. It's... And that's not why we did it. Yeah. And and as I've continued to do tastings and people have continued to ask me, what bottles do you recommend to somebody just getting into this? What would you say um, is a whiskey they should spend their hard-earned money on? I'm now more and more saying, funny you should ask. Joshua and I did a podcast on it. <laughs> yes. But... But what I've really liked about the nation reaching back out to us is it's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Here's ours. It's not definitive. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's not the 10 bottles every whiskey lover must own. Yeah. It's, here's five things that Jason thinks you should include on your shelf. Here's five things Joshua thinks you should include on your shelf. And someone writes in and says, oh, and I'd add that, and I'd add that. So we'll circle back to that. In a, in a future episode as well and hear some, some nation recommendations. But I'm really glad our listeners understood what we were trying to achieve with that podcast mm-hmm. and it was a response to a list that we, we took a little bit of umbrage with. Good. Yep. I enjoyed that point of clarification as well. So here we are, Jason. This is the end. My Until next only time. friend, the end. All right, Jason. It's been a time. It's merely a, it's merely a parting, not an ending. That's true. Until next time. Until then. Two chins. Shit. Why stop there? Why? Why not both? Wait. No, that is both. Yes, two chins. <laughs> <laughs>